uh, is this, is this it? It's it. What, what is, is it? it? It's that's the question that it. we'll be answering today. Mm. What is, is this, you know it? what, is this it? And the answer is, yeah, yeah, this is, it was, it was, this was, it. this is it. <laughs> uh, a podcast about words about music i'm chris wade and i'm molly o'brien and introducing the new york scene that defined rock and roll at the dawn of the new millennium it's time to meet me in the bathroom lizzie goodman's 2016 oral history compiles the definitive story of the strokes yeah yeah yeah's lcd sound system tv on the radio interpol and a slew of other young hip bands that made new york city the worldwide ground zero for indie rock, Ground Z, Ground Z, like British thing. Yes, the Ground Z, <laughs> the Ground Zero for indie rock hipsters and as much coke as you can get up your nose. Woo! But first, let's introduce our own guest on loan from the band Tokyo Police Club on keys. It's Graham Wright. How's Yo. it going? Hello. Great. Zed is also Canadian. Zed is you, a Canadian, you, so I feel very welcome. Oh my oh, god! We fuck with Zed. Zed spelling color with a U, favorite with a U, pop. Uh, shit. This, did the movie The Favorite, did that just feel like right at home? I didn't even notice it. Yeah, you're just like, yeah, I cool. was like, great, that's the, the name favorite. of a movie. Yeah. <laughs> Meanwhile, here we're like, ooh, this is the name of a fancy movie. This is a fancy movie. So it is a fancy movie. I found it fancy. It yeah. was. It was a very fancy movie. But we're not here to talk about The Favorite, but we are here to talk about one of my The Favorites. Yes. LCD Sound System. Yes. Uh, we are doing Meet Me in the Bathroom. And guys, get ready to turn off the bright lights. <laughs> Lose your edge. Because I do have a fever to tell today. Oh, God. <laughs> uh, this is Mo- very good. Yeah, this is all good. <laughs> is Molly great. told me not to do that earlier, but I, uh, I I'm on I your side. I didn't tell you not to. I just said, "Oh God." <laughs> you, you told me to think about it, I and I thought it. about it, and I said that I wanted to. Anyway, this is a book that I knew that we would have to do basically as soon as it came out. Uh, this covers yep. some of my favorite uh, uh, musical acts, and frankly, one of the reasons that I moved to the city and pursued the life that I live now, mm. uh, a fantasy land of hip young art. Uh, artist that basically never really happened and certainly was gone by the time I got here. But Graham, you got in touch with us and, and requested this book. Uh, what what drew you to uh, meet me in the bathroom? Well, that's like like the way that you moved to New York because of this fantasy land. I moved to my career as a professional musician because of the same fantasy land. Yeah. And similarly, I got there to discover it abandoned, if ever inhabited at all. Yes. <laughs> and I didn't have the guts to read the book when it came out because I wasn't sure I wanted to know how that sausage got made. Because yeah. It was such a big deal for yeah. me. That sausage was so delicious when I ate it the first time <laughs> that to, to regurgitate it under a microscope seemed maybe like it was going to do more harm than good. Yeah. But then I found out that I could make you read it yes. and just talk about those bands. Yes. Mo- Molly is the uh, the sin eater, but for uh, stories about bands. Sure. I'm I'm happy to do it. I'm happy to be the it's vessel. It's an occupational hazard. Yeah. 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 You read yeah, a no. lot of books. There's a lot of books. This was a very good one. Like I, as Chris said earlier, like I chugged this book. I read it very, is is fast and furious. And I feel like it broke my brain a little bit of like, it, it was a, a sausage making book in that the things that, you know, I was like a teenager in Vermont that seems so glamorous 
and cool and hip and awesome. And that made me want to move to New York also. Um, it, on the inside, things, yeah. were, things were weird, man. Well, it's also, there's like built into the book from what I've read of it and what I understand of it is a sort of um, remove, you know, mm-hmm. as much as it's an oral history and they got some of the bands to talk about it. It seems like it's by and at least as much about the other people who were hanging out yeah. at Mitz Shapes and <laughs> yes. went to the shows at Merck. Right. And seem to be a lot more invested in those days than like any of the bands that made those days so special yes. yeah more special which is part of what i find so interesting about it as someone who kind of bought into that mystique as well yeah that someone it's kind of like writing an oral history of your high school days yeah. i mean like they were so well, special and great yeah. well, we interviewed all the popular kids yes. yeah <laughs> <laughs> well that's one of the interesting things about this is that uh in reading about it it says lizzie goodman spent uh six years compiling this book through yeah. interviews and the end of the and it came out in like 2017 uh, and the book, Molly, you say it basically ends with LCD's farewell concert at Madison Square Garden, which yes. is 2011. Mm-hmm. So doing some quick math, she basically started writing this book as soon as she herself says that the scene ended. Yeah. Now, did she even beat the LCD sound system reunion to market? With the book? <laughs> I mean, I she's right like around there. It was right around there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that, that kind of says it all. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> No, they came out in a. They came back together in 2016, 2016, and the dedication to this book was written in November 2016. So right around the same time. Yeah, and it was probably. I think it had to have been like mostly wrapped by that time. So yeah. she she really nailed it. So yeah. someone needs to write a book about I guess 2011 to to 2016 of like what happened when LCD wasn't there. Nothing great. Nothing. No, <laughs> no, no good rock Dead music zone. was made. Dead t- ghost town. Uh, I'm I'm obliged to say that some good rock music. <laughs> <was made. laughs> yes. Look up Tokyo Police Club on Spotify today. Yes. Um. Well, Graham, you're, you know, usually we go around and, and say what our experience is. There's a lot of music in here that we're all clearly, we were fans of, we grew yeah. up with. Uh, but you're actually the first musician um, we've had on really? the show. Yes. yes wow. I yes. Um, oh, what a uh, what a precedent to set. Yeah, unless, uh, <laughs> it's not going to be a high bar. <laughs> unless some of the our other guests were uh, are like bedroom musicians who haven't shared their great masterworks yet. Doesn't yeah. count. Doesn't count. But, uh my understanding of, of, you know, the Tokyo Police Club history is that you guys are basically like one generation kind of removed from these guys. We showed up to the party after all the coke was just, just finished. Oh, God. But people were like, go to that party. Yes. And we got there and we're like, we heard some great things. And like, just as we went in, like Vampire Weekend was coming down the stairs with whatever was left. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then we were just in an empty, like the room from the end of Russian Doll when it's just like the music's echoing, but there's no one there. Uh, wow. That sounds extremely dismal, but it's great. It's been my job for 13 years, so that's not really a complaint. Well, I mean, look, we uh, we're all around the same age. We all graduated college in the in. I graduated college in 2009, right when as the recession hit, and you're like, oh well, there's there is there's nothing in this room, is there? Yeah. Um, I had a, a sort of like on air uh, realization slash meltdown when we talked about um, Britney Spears on an earlier episode, mm-hmm. and I I went on this big spiel about how like the dream of the mid aughts that was kind of sold to us that life was just going to be a constant boost mobile party. <laughs> where you would like listen to Electro Clash and like do someone else's drugs was yeah. it was sold to us and we bought it and it was a lemon. There was no that, that car did not go. Yeah, did you have Virgin Mobile in the states? Um, we did, pan. but it was a very oh. small market. All share. their ads they were big in Canada because we have a very limited telecom industry, so whoever <laughs> gets in is big. And yeah. all their ads were like these sort of you know last night's party style pictures of mm. like a 
perfectly gender diverse group of beautiful people, sweaty but not too sweaty, yeah. yep. sort of in the show lights. And I feel like that's yeah. what we were promised. Yeah, just uh, just trolling the internet for um, you know, like uh, Carl's like the hipster runoff blog. Oh and, yeah, oh yeah. Um, text from last night. Uh, oh, text from last Cobra, night. Was big. Cobra, the Cobra snake, snake, all that stuff. So yeah, then then you show you you move to the big city and. Instagram happens, so now you can take all your yeah. own party pictures, I guess. Yeah. So you alluded, so you were say, talking about this a little flippantly, but I wonder if you could expand on that at all. Of like, you got as you guys were coming up, I guess you then are saying that you you had like these kind of early aughts bands as models for like oh, how yeah. the indie scene mm -hmm. works. Can you uh, expand a little about like that? How that made you think of these bands? Yeah. Well, I think what was interesting for us in terms of sort of like a, a, a stacking of expectations was we grew up in like the suburbs of Toronto, mm -hmm. which not so far away, but just early enough in the internet age that Toronto felt like monumentally far away and, yeah. and, and it loomed really large. And the music that we knew, especially when we were younger was like, what was on the radio or what was on TV. And so we were all then uh, big Radiohead fans because like, sure. in 2000, 2001, the only band that you might hear about that seemed cool, that seemed like not, you know, Corn and Limp Bizkit, yeah. Yeah. who I also listened to, yeah. was Radiohead because that was when K-Day came out. So you start there where you're like, oh, the biggest band in the world, the most like zeitgeisty relevant thing. And then the Strokes, when they came out, seemed like, oh shit, yeah. that's mm -hmm. accessible. Those are the underdogs. That's what we could do. Like yeah. they're just guys with yeah. long hair. I have long hair. <laughs> I think I got long hair after the strokes, but you know, sure. still, that's, it, that's takes a my, it takes a while to grow it. Uh, <laughs> I was going for Johnny Greenwood. <laughs> who wasn't? And so I think that that sort of set another expectation, which now I understand the strokes and Radiohead are like, there's not that much daylight between them sure. in terms of how they were plugged into the industry. And, you know, they're both on majors and they yeah. both like, got to take advantage of a thing that we never got to take advantage of and that barely even existed by the time we got to it. Uh, at least not for like four dudes with guitars. Yeah. Right. Maybe that's good. But uh, <laughs> so I think that, yeah, by the time we got out of the gate, which was like the MySpace Arctic Monkeys thing. Mm -hmm. Right, right. We were a MySpace band. Right. Hell and yeah. we were like, Arctic Monkeys were the MySpace band, but we were sort of in that conversation. You were in the top yeah. eight. And we were a Canadian band. We were in the top eight. Sorry, that took me a second to get. Yeah, you're like, yes. oh my god, that's <laughs> how long it's been. Yeah. So yeah, you were uh, you were with life. you were also part in that like uh, wave with uh, social scene and arcade fire. Scene. We were after that arcade fire, Wolf Parade. Yeah, yep. um, but uh, we we got scooped up with the same sort of interest. Uh, yeah, scooper. Yeah. What do you call that? Uh, spoon. Spoon. <laughs> <laughs> Metal dealie used to dig food. Yeah. Molly, do you have any more that you want to expand on? You're feeling with these I mean, bands? this was like this was the shit that I got into when I didn't know what was cool and I the internet was just a bit like I didn't have high speed internet at home until like that could download an MP3 until like 2008. So like oh, this wow. was all like it was kind of remote but kind of close and like yeah. you just got the sense that this was all and it was exciting and the the way I was marketed it was not by like obviously I wasn't going to shows. Um, I wasn't there, you know, the, the I was there syndrome. Mm -hmm. But um, I, I'll never forget when I was watching, I used to watch a shitload of MTV and there was an MTV news spot. They would just do these little like three minute things of just like, what's happening in music these days? And I think it was like 2002. 
And uh, who's who's like the old head on uh, MTV? John Norris. John Norris. It was yes. John Norris being like, uh, "We're we're talking today about a brand new band coming out of NYC that everyone's really interested in called Interpol." And they just show these like dour drab guys in these suits and ties, and I was like, "What is this?" And I think they got some B roll of them like walking drably around the streets too. And I was like, "They were all this doing the uh, the Virgin Walk from the Virgin in the Chad memes, <laughs> but they look like Interpol." <laughs> Like, I just remember thinking like, oh, it, it was probably the first time I was a, actually aware of like a musical movement happening and I was adjacent to it, but like could not touch it. But it was marketed to me as something that I would eventually want. Yeah. As opposed to like when I listened to teen pop when I was in like when I was a child, it was like I didn't think of it as a movement or a trend. It was just air. It was just there. Yeah. It's on the radio. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that's how I felt. So reading this was a was a real, real mind fuck, honestly. Yeah, I mean, my my background was like in high school, uh, my cooler friends like hand, handed me an Interpol CD and was like, this is the cool band now. And I was like, oh, yes, this is the cool band now. It is a cool band. Uh, and so I, I was into that. I, I kind of lumped the strokes in with like, I kind of wrote them all off with the strokes, the vines and the hives where I was like, oh, these are all like whatever, like yeah. trying to do like a garage rock revival. Yeah. So that, that wasn't really my thing. And I was more into the Canadian band scene. <laughs> uh, like well, Parade was a huge band for me and uh, um, Islands or, or the Unicorns first. Yeah, um, well, The grass is always greener. But then freshman year of college, uh, a group of seniors that I knew was walking past me one weekend night and they were like, hey, Chris, what are you doing? And I was like, I, nothing. And they were like, come with this cut to this concert with us. We're going to see LCD sound system. And I was like, I don't know what that is. And they were like, they do that Daft Punk is playing in my house song. And I was like, oh, I know what Daft Punk is. Sure, I'll go to this. Uh, <laughs> I know what houses are. And I'm just getting this out of the way up front because uh, this is my bias for the episode is that from seeing that LCD Sound System concert in 2005 uh, was, you know, the time when I felt like somebody reached into my head and pulled out a fully formed a band that reflected everything that I ever wanted in music. And mm -hmm. from that moment to this day, they became my band. Um, my band, my band. Uh, and I've seen them after every single, at least once after every single album came out, I was at, didn't make it into Madison square garden, but got one of the Turnable five shows for their farewell show. You were there. I was there when they got back together at Coachella. You I had to go there. all the yeah, way out there still at terminal them. five. You're yeah, in the coach. I was line. waiting. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, they are the one thing. And I think still waiting for a cab outside of terminal five. Yeah. I, I think everybody has this about one thing, whether it's a book or a movie or a band, but this is my one thing where I firmly, truly objectively believe that I am a better fan and they are a more important band to me than anyone else who is a fan of them or they are a, a important band too. This is like your content war like content warning. I will, LCD I will sound be, system fan. Well, yes. that's, I feel that way about the strokes. Yeah. Really? Um, and like touching on the later records isn't actually going to factor into this that much, but it's my love of their later records that makes mm -hmm. me feel like everyone's wrong. And I'm yes. right. Yeah. But <laughs> I think you that's what's you interesting. Stuck around. Yeah. What's interesting about this book though, is that it is like the subject matter, the bands themselves, the book aren't that, you know, I'm sure some of them are kind of yeah, yeah. lamer than than they maybe seemed at the time. But for the most part, they're still pretty cool. They're still, still pretty unimpeachable. Yeah. But it's it's this cult around them. Yeah. That's also so bad for the bands. Yeah. Yes. Know? The Strokes would probably be a cooler band if they didn't have such worship around them. Yeah. Yes. Oh my God. So damaging. 
<laughs> ultimately. Yeah. These poor, I, I really left this book being like, these poor strokes. <laughs> oh my God. Because then someone phones you like six years later and they're like, hey, can I talk to you for five hours about yeah. your, you know, three years of your 20s? Yeah. We're going to put it in a book and everyone's going to do a podcast about it. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> You'd be like, I just live in upstate. Leave me alone. <laughs> I want Every, this. The worst fate ever. Everyone's going to podcast about this. Yeah, I mean, that, a, fate, a fate worse than death is to have your, your history dissected over and over by a thousand podcasts. Death by a thousand podcasts. Death by a thousand podcasts. Death by audio. Death, d- death from death above. Death from above. Here we go. Let's <laughs> Which death from above? The LCD sound system adjacent one or, or the, the Canadian 1979? Uh, I do love Death from Above 1979. That shit slaps. Very strong uh, band or orientation. Any band that's just a bass and a guitar, I think, is, uh, or a bass and a drum set is, yeah, uh, is going to be powerful. I think strong, that's true. Strong yeah. vibes. Um, should we should we dig in? Let's dig in. So like, I'm just going to preamble uh, this by being like, wow, this book was very long. There's a lot going on. It's very dense. Sometimes like I'll read a book and be like, ah, this part where he talks a lot about how much he loves race cars, like we're probably not going to delve super far into this. <laughs> but everything in this book felt so important. Like there was no fat. There's no gristle in this in this. Baby. Even the part where Fab talks about how much he loves race cars. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's, a, it's somehow more relevant in this situation. Uh, so, I mean, it starts being like the, this quote really killed me is uh, someone said everybody's living through their own golden age, but you only realize it afterwards. So start living it now. I think that's like yeah. just the whole theme of this book is like it was a golden age and like it, I don't think people appreciate these things when they happen. Yeah, of course they don't. <laughs> yeah. You can't walk around. There's I see like in my Instagram discover tab, they seem to think that I want to see office memes a lot. <laughs> and there's some meme of uh Andy Ed Helms and I don't even know if this is from the show or not but it's like I wish there was some way to know you were in the glory days before you'd already left them and I'm like Damn. that kind of like high school yearbook asked like fake philosophy <laughs> I'm disappointed that this book starts with that uh, yeah is that what we're in for oh we're I mean we're in for some like real uh real kind of not nostalgia exactly but like nostalgia for like something that happened five minutes ago hours yeah. so uh, well that's where we're at now yeah. we're in the recursive loop yeah well it's also like um you know, no matter how good a moment is or how much nostalgia that you look back on it is, is you have to remember that for every single thing, like when you see the big picture, you can see the contours of what it's good. But like day to day, it's like, ah, oh, fuck, I got to go to the post office and mail a letter today. Yeah. Yeah. You like, don't oh, remember that. Yeah, stuff. Yeah. We're rehearsing again or yeah. like we're on a tour in yeah. another city that I'm not aware of where we are. Yeah. Or like we did some more cocaine. Yes. Yeah. That shit gets repetitive, apparently. I guess. Um, but so when we start, we're basically they basically like introduce rock in the late '90s, which is and in New York in the late '90s, both of which are just like dead, like the Limp Biscuit yeah. type mm-hmm. stuff. It was like rap rock. Um, the dance scene was also kind of like corny and overproduced. Like there's like the Prodigy and like Moby and these sort of techno things, but like that that music is not really hitting on a, a huge level. Um, Mark Spitz, who is he gave the most amazing quotes for this. Yeah, uh, Mark, yeah poor R.I.P. Mark Spitz. Holy shit. Um, he 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 died like not long after this book came out or was done. Um, I read also just a total random, rec- not random, but recommendation is he wrote an amazing memoir of being in New York in the 90s called Poser. Um, that's super good. And we should talk about it. Anyway, um, he he's describing the scene. He says Soundgarden is broken up. Oasis had not delivered on their potential. <laughs> um, there was always going to be Dave Matthews band. You can't even criticize them. They're just there. It'd be like criticizing <laughs> pigeons. You can't get rid of them. You just hope they don't shit on you. But the bottom line is there was money and we needed new rock stars. <laughs> um, and another line to sort of just describe the same fate is we're talking about a time when Coldplay was considered alternative. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, 
America's uh, the Cold War was over. The lack of competition was no longer there, and America's strate- strategic rock star supply had dipped dangerously low. <laughs> yeah, the Brits were eating their yeah, lunch exactly, yeah. and not even tra- with Travis. And yeah, Coldplay. exactly. Yeah, and Britpop it kind of like died. They, yeah, they we're like, well, yeah, we got away with this with Britpop. Now we don't even have to try. They're not yeah. even. They're not even uh, uh, sending sending competitors anymore. Yeah. Yeah, de- definitely a dead time. Also, like '90s is like the rise of uh, of hip hop, mm-hmm. and so there's uh, someone John Heileman said the white kids were just like, okay, we're gonna skip this decade, <laughs> which I think I a mean, great way of describing yeah. the '90s. Yeah, so I think there's a way to look at this. I mean, we're you know this early aughts American return of rock scene to which I owe my livelihood, frankly. Yeah, but as kind of like a last gasp of a, a part of the culture that the zeitgeist had really irrevocably left behind. Yeah, yes. I mean, we're we're skip- we're basically like. The last thing that had surged up is like the the alter the punk to underground to like college rock to grunge thing had like burst and then become this like bloated bubble that sagged into into like uh, uh, late nineties alt rock. Yeah, like yeah. Lou Barlow was breaking up two bands at yeah, a time. Exactly, like was the, that was how easy it was. At that <laughs> so point. that it's it just seems like that whole trajectory had run into a cul de sac, like a, yeah. a cultural cul de sac. And there yeah. was nothing going on there. And then hip hop was obviously the only thing that was exciting around it was the time. new, yeah. Yeah, it's new, fresh. But it had nothing to do with cool New York kids. And that, yeah. that could not stand. Yeah, yep. <laughs> the, the clout must return to New York. The clout must return. Uh, the There's a Steve Schiltz of Longwave uh, said our manager. Our manager also managed Weedus. And he sat me down. The manager sat me down once and told me, okay, Radiohead has creep. Beck has loser, and now Weedus has teenage dirtbag. You've got to write a song like this. <laughs> wow. <laughs> he says, uh, I, I, I read like the first 50 pages of this because that's about how much of a book I can read while Molly, while Molly reads 600 pages. Mm-hmm. That's fine. Uh, and he, he goes on to say, that's what you got to have. Teenage disaffection and a monster chorus. Yeah. I mean, if Longwave had written a teenage dirtbag, they yeah. would probably still be like doing heavy festival gigs right now yeah. instead of I'm not sure if they still exist. Yeah, yes. like I don't know really what's up with Longwave. I don't know. Maybe they all have farms or something. Their life <laughs> yeah. is nice. I shouldn't. I shouldn't shit on them. <laughs> I like that. That's the the standard for a nice life is just like actually fuck literally everything. I'm, I live I'm, in a van now. I'm farming. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, right this month. Yeah. yeah. All the time. Yeah. I have a couch. Uh, uh, <laughs> yes. I mean, I guess that's the two trajectories that we've noticed for rock stars. Basically, is either. Uh, Po- recovered alcoholic third marriage uh, live in the ga- a gaudy suburban house or own a farm in the country own like Alex James yeah 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 that's like Canadian Cribs yeah which was a show for a while oh my god <laughs> did they call it Canadian Cribs or was no it just they cribs? just called it Cribs but it was really cribs, clear cribs.ca once you've cribs. seen buck 65's crib you're like oh yeah this is not the same show <laughs> <laughs> anyway that's not that's not the topic of um, the they uh, talked about the sort of precursor to the OO's rock revival was um, Jonathan Fire Eater. Did you yeah. listen to Jonathan Fire Eater? Yeah. So, because everyone, I think, went around like the, in the 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 conversation around this book, there was a lot of talk about how Jonathan Fire Eater was like the real uh, harbingers of the yeah, scene. They were so the great. And I found the record, and yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, what do you was think? Not entirely for me. Yeah. But I'm sure it was very exciting. That's the thing. It's been. If if it birthed an entire scene, it's kind of hard to listen to it as like you know something sweet generis when it's like now it just sounds like a you know it's like Ringo's drumming sounds shitty until you realize he invented all that. Yes. Yeah. Oh yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, it's it kind of sounds like a watered down, less focused, less tight, less catchy strokes in exactly. some ways. So yeah. it's like yeah, obviously that's going to seem lame. Also, they sounded like a really good live band, um, which yeah, I think that, was yeah. also what it was kind in pre-internet 
saturation times. It seemed like the actual passing on of um, inspiration was literally IRL. Like Karen O would, went and saw Jonathan Fire Eater and was like, oh, I thought it was really cool the way he um, like ate his microphone. And like then you have Karen O eating her microphone. Yep. Yeah. And in, uh, the parts that I read about them, just like person after person after person being like they were so sexy. Sexy. Mm-hmm. And like skinny. and Which is not a word I ever heard applied to like the Walkman. Yeah. yeah so no. <laughs> I guess I was missing something. Yes. I only think about Hamilton Lighthouser when I think of the white of the Walkman and yeah. him being like n- a nine foot tall, yeah. like gray alien. But then again, like you look at Interpol now and at the time everyone was like, wow, what a bunch of sharp dressed men. And now they, they look like horrible young Republicans. The yeah. suits are awful. They all wear the black, the black shirts yeah. and then the shiny oh. ties. Yeah. yeah like shiny high, ties. Like, that's when I wore a uh, grade eight grad. Yeah. Before <laughs> I knew about Interpol, that was the best I could think of. But I guess when it's been the 90s for so long and everyone's been in like baggy sweatpants, the first time someone wears like a tie on stage, well, that's right, we'll fuck him. Yeah. Well, that's what you gotta, again, when we're thinking about like what else is going on in rock music and you think of like a front man like Fred Durst yeah. with the, like the fitted Very backwards sloppy. cap and like the long t-shirt. I mean, like frat guys basically were fronting bands. Oh, yeah. Um, later on in the book, uh, Pell Almqvist of the Hives. Ha- Hal and Pell. Hal and Pell. Um, he says, he's like, I learned something really important. Uh, a rock movement is a style of pants. <laughs> and I was like, holy shit. Actually, John Mayer just uh, put forth a similar theory on his like Instagram live weekly show, uh, which, oh, what is it called? Uh, I'm that was a reference it. I was not expecting. Yeah, no, he, he was basically like history, historical eras of fiction or of fashion are pants. Like it's all waist down. Waist up, usually people are wearing like, I don't know, button down shirts or t-shirts or whatever. And then you see the second half of the person, you're like, oh, that's 1979. Okay. Or, oh, that's 2001. I mean, the Hives were the actual sharpest dressed band yeah. of that era. White suits. Toy. Yeah. Very toy. So yeah, the, the pants are getting, the, the jeans are getting, they're getting skinny. It's happening. Um, so Jonathan Fire Eater, of course, like implodes mm-hmm. um, before they even, and they're, they're, this is still the, the late 90s end of uh the all that money in major label like people are just starving yeah. for these bands to give millions of dollars to um but they they like have a deal and they, they just totally blow it um and the lead singer of Jonathan Fire Eater uh was like a super super into heroin and he he died last year yeah pretty recently he yeah. floated around for a long time yeah and... so like i don't know fuck <laughs> it's not good yes it's it's damaging shit uh there, so like that was the they kind of pinpointed John Jonathan Fire Eaters like everything sort of came from this or like they showed that New York was ready for this is patient yeah. zero yes patient zero yes um, okay so then like all of these things kind of start bubbling up um, should we talk about DFA because DFA kind of yeah. gets started with um, James Murphy yes. and uh, uh, the, that other guy <laughs> T- Timothy Goldworthy uh, Tim Tim Goldsworthy. DFA basically started from like there's this trust fund kid uh, named uh, Tyler Brody who purchased a building and they like built out a studio in studio it. In uh-huh. it. Cool. And he was just like, I got all this money and I need to do something with it. So why not like have a studio for all my friends? And that's how. And then he eventually wrote a song about it. All my friends. Yes. Anyway. So do you want to go into James Murphy's background? Yeah. Um <laughs> I mean, he's as good a figure as any to sort of follow through. Yeah, because he's also so he's a bit older. He's like he's an audio guy. Like he's a very like an audio nerd. He has done sound for these like pretty much straight up indie bands that were six finger satellite, six finger satellite, like all these sort of stale ass like 
bands contributing to the scene or not contributing to the scene. But um, someone, Tyler Brody, the, the rich guy, said that he would grow out his hair and sell it for wigs. He had really what? long, lustrous hair. That sounds like such a myth. I don't believe that. I mean, James Rory doesn't. <laughs> you know how long to... it takes to grow your hair out long enough that they'll take it? Yeah. Yeah, like ye- like years. Yeah, like there was. There's not enough years in this story for him to have done that more than once. <laughs> James Murphy does have good hair, which yeah. is one of the one of the only like real rock star qualities about his physique. That's yeah. true. Yeah. 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 Um, I think that does it though. Similar to the way that pants kind of make the fashion statement. Yeah. I think that if. If you have really good hair, you can kind of do anything below that. Hard agree. We'll be like, damn, that person's cool. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it do, it does count for a lot. Like Nick Zinner from uh, yeah, yeah, yeah has, has like incredible yeah. hair. So, um, there there's a do you know shit robot? Yes. So the Marcus who I know from shit robot. shit robot, uh, he describes kind of the relationship he had with James is like. He, he said, I started playing him good dance music, but every time I was like, dude, check this out. This is the best record ever. He would say, that's just a can sample or that's just a liquid liquid sample. Mm-hmm. So like James is coming to the scene with like a record collector's knowledge of all this stuff and basically being like dance music sucks and I don't like it. And like all the dance music that you think is original is not. And just from that comes like, oh, we could do we could do that. But it really isn't until he does uh, does ecstasy that that all like gels. This is a little shit robot off their uh, album from the cradle to the rave. This is a little later, twenty ten. From the but... cradle to the rave, yeah. Why weren't they the Strokes? <laughs> yeah, I know that's the best album title I've ever heard. That, this album's really good, by the way. That's an incredible uh, album title. James Murphy's origin story and also entire life is kind of like a tech startup guy. Ooh, I feel like he has, yeah. and he has that weird Seinfeld thing where oh, he yeah. allegedly did they was ever, offered. Did they mention that? They did not mention that. that show. Yeah, I've seen him. That's weird. Uh, I've seen that mentioned many times, but I've never seen it corroborated in any place yeah. that's not like other things. You should have asked Larry Charles. Oh <laughs> shit! I should have asked Larry Charles. You gotta, you gotta hit him back up and be like, I, one I, more, one more follow-up. Real question. Yes. Yeah. God, get, you gotta, you gotta dig in. The uh, uh, God, James Murphy is as tech startup in in terms of he has like, track, an, it felt he has an infusion of cash from like a, a million he, yeah, he is an angel investor he has an angel investor he has an angel investor and he's disrupting dance yeah he music. has this whole sort of encyclopedic knowledge that he uses to just call bullshit on everything that's going on and replace it with his own yeah oh my god thing yeah and i mean like he he comes out in this book is like i don't think it's any surprise to anyone who's a fan of james Murphy that he's basically a single minded uh you know an uncompromising vision as yes. we we did a we did an episode on uh, the spider-man musical and julie Taymor always Ooh, is described yeah. as having uncompromising vision mm-hmm. james murphy uncompromising, uncompromising vision. vision yeah he's a founder um, yeah, yeah he he's a founder. <laughs> And I'll, I'll stop. I won't stick on this. Bit. <laughs> no, it's like now. Now that I'm thinking of it that, well, way, no, like, but that's oh the thing God. about LCD that makes it so interesting is that it's not a band and that it's a collaboration. It's not like a composition project. It is like a full fledged media project. Now he doesn't really do multimedia, but the way that yeah. he conceives of songs, like mm-hmm. he doesn't jam them out with the band. He like makes the whole song by himself. Maybe gets people into like play other parts that he he can't play, but he like basically constructs the whole thing. And he'll say that like when LCD Sound System goes on tour, they are an LCD Sound System cover band, yeah. Yeah. just like bringing the songs that he creates in the studio alive. But he also really recognizes the value of presenting LCD Sound System as a band. And right. He had that set of rules for their live show about like no tracks. And yeah, you, know, yeah. you can find it somewhere. It's like a you know it's a manifesto. Yeah, and having someone actually playing the conga part and you know doing jacking in and out of the modular or yeah, whatever yeah. it was. Yeah, like he knows how to present that music that 
in another way, you could if the photo shoot was like him with headphones. Yeah, you'd be like, yeah, of course he made that all in his studio. Yeah, yeah. but to sell it as a band makes it feel of a piece with the Strokes rather than of a piece with Moby or whatever. Else. Yeah, exactly. yes, he was like definitely not trying to be that like weird producer auteur. Um, he'll, because he'll, he had he had band experience and he straddled the worlds, man. He'll he'll also say that like when he he like designs the albums as as whole pieces. Mm-hmm. So it's like you know when like this is happening was coming out, he like ma- basically made the whole album and then was like, oh this this needs a three minute pop hit and then just like generated uh, drunk girls. Yeah, it was like there that now it has the like pop song on it. Worst song in the record, by the way. I don't like that song very much. <laughs> One touch all the way. One touch or or die. Um, so yeah, that like DFA, it also starts with like parties. There's a big scene in general of like these, there's like Justine D the like legendary DJ who has these parties that she DJs at. There's motherfucker, which I don't know if you heard anything about that. It only took place on three day weekends at these like gigantic, horrible, like hangar type of clubs that, uh, were, I guess, abandoned on holiday weekends when everyone would, I don't know, go to the Hamptons or whatever, but uh, there's basically there's interest in there's like rock music and there's dance music and there's ways to blend them and people yeah. are starting to do that. It's like that was hey, a really British thing, right? I feel yeah. like all those parties like misshapes were happening everywhere in the UK. Or I mean, I mean that's by the like, time we got over there, which is later, but they th- felt like they had a real heritage. I mean, that's like a real hacienda thing. It's yes. like the pro- the party project, the like theme project. I mean, we were watching a little bit of like the Studio Fifty Four doc and they were talking yeah. about their theme nights and stuff. But I feel like those big like linking rock scene dj scene with like prop parties with names and stuff that that does feel like a kind of like hacienda-esque yes project totally um they also talked about plant bar which was the uh it was described as a big dot-com ecstasy electronic music hangout <laughs> so <laughs> wow plant, in plant other words bar, heaven yeah, yeah, yeah. no it's a, it sounds great it was basically <laughs> So Plant Bar was like built and existed and somehow they got, it was at the tail end of the dot-com boom. They got this uh, digital jukebox company called Muzu, M-U-Z-U. I feel like I remember having seen a Muzu somewhere. They basically throw a party for them and they're like, you need to give us $10,000 and we're going to spend it on the sound system at Plant Bar. And Muzu's like, sure, but you have to put a plaque on the wall of of Plant Bar that says, Thanks to Muzu. <laughs> and two weeks later, they folded because of yeah. uh, the dot com. And oh, so they were like, yes. it's amazing that we got a check out of Muzu. But thank- thanks to Muzu. I remember- Was the plaque put up? Uh, yeah, <laughs> they did Mu- it. Thanks to Muzu. It's so funny. Uh, I remember like some of my uh, friends at like Slate when I worked there uh, who are older, who lived in New York in the 90s, were talking about just how deep, and it's kind of forgotten now, how deep of a dot com boom city this was in like Silicon the late Alley. 90s. And they talked about how there were services kind of like a original late 90s Postmates. Yeah, 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 yeah. But they were so desperate to like grow their service and stuff that you would basically like call them and just ask for like, hey, can you send me like peanut butter, a pint of ice cream and like a VHS of Top Gun? And they would like do it for free. Yeah. There were like no delivery fees. Yeah. No delivery fees. Because they were just trying to scale. Yeah. Wow. They were, yeah. So, yeah. I forget what it was called, but I remember hearing about that too. Like yeah, they, yeah. they had all the same ideas that we have now. They just did not execute them at all in a way that was sustainable. The internet wasn't good yet and phones weren't good yet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So they couldn't do it. It's like how Shazam, you used to be able to phone a number. Yeah. Yeah. And it would tell you the song. But it sucked. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so that crazy. that's kind of like the milieu that this whole thing is, is that there is like a st- still that like 
the first realm of dot-com money sloshing around the city. Yeah, which yeah. is conveniently left out of the popular narrative, yeah. I think. It's supposed to be this, like, sort of this heyday right before everything got, like, teched up and ruined. Yeah. No, it's, I, I was personally, my mind was blown reading this. I was like, oh, wait, this wasn't, I mean, it was definitely scrappy people, like, trying to get by but it was also like there was a lot of money yeah. like and it was accessible it wasn't people weren't necessarily coming from a place of total you know if you didn't have any money your friend who started you know pet petfood.com yes. or whatever and they were talking about uh how everybody it was just like a whole ecosystem of knowing somebody who bartended at a place yeah where it was like everybody everybody had friend well, at least one friend who was a bartender there were seven bartenders who worked at any bar at any given week so you knew every night where your bartender friend was at a different bar and then everybody would just pass around the same $20 bill to each other, paying right. each other at the end of yeah. the night for free drinks. Sounds, sounds good to me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Electro Clash also kind of sprouted up at this time. Great. Yes. Do you guys have feelings about Electro Clash? I missed that one. More. <laughs> that one didn't make it to the uh, to New Market, Ontario. Oh, yeah. Really very much. Fucking but Peaches. Yeah, peaches. we knew about Peaches, but Peaches was like scary to me when Peaches was out. I was still like 13. I was not ready. Peaches is one of those people who I read about before I heard the music because this was once again at a time where I wasn't able to necessarily just stream whatever I wanted all the time. And so I would read about her like she would get featured in Rolling Stone. And I'd be like, she sounds terrifying. <laughs> She's got like her pubes out and like singing about like sexual shit. I was like, oh, my God, Peaches. Yeah. Whoa. Um, but then she gave the world feist. Yes. So she she's also, Peaches is a real like patient zero for a lot of scene stuff. She is. The the real like villains of Electro Clash, they the, describe Electro, the Electro Clash as Electro basically Clash. something that as soon as it was labeled, no one wanted anything to do with it. Sure. Okay. Like no one wanted to be an Electro Clash band. Uh, Fisher Spooner's the real, like everyone seems to have nothing but vitriol for Fisher Spooner. That that even reached me because I remember I worked at a bookstore like Canadian Borders and there was a, <laughs> I would read Rolling Stone on my breaks because yeah. that was what there was to get you know connected to the culture. Yeah, and yeah. I remember there was a big feature about Fisher Spooner. Yeah. And I got the vibe. And you're like, oh, this sounds ridiculous. It seemed like assholes. Yeah, yeah, no. It was like just like these, they wore like costumes and like yeah. had costume changes. Someone described, uh, someone described it as uh, when I first saw Fisher Spooner, I thought they were ridiculous because I didn't understand but when you put them in an art gallery, then it has a sort of frame. <laughs> also, I think that you could look at it from the opposite angle and kind of like Fisher Spooner were Scandinavian or something, right? I, I like they were from. I don't know not, where they were from. Maybe, maybe it's maybe I, I just I got that vibe right off the music. They, they certainly seem that. I way. was going to equate with them, equate them with the Hives, but I'll do it anyway, regardless yeah. of geography. Which yeah. is that like those were bands that kind of took what everyone was pretending was all cool and original mm -hmm. and just sort of did it not not as satire but like as pastiche yes and we're like hey this is a show still and it maybe was a little too accurate yeah and so everyone had to hate them yeah you know the they hives weren't hated but they never felt like they were part of the the fun family and i think it was because they maybe made it a little clear that like this is a bit of a costume yes and you can put it on versus yes. the strokes were like we are no, like literally a gang who like runs mm -hmm. through the lower east side like beating people up in our leather jackets yeah. yes yeah they're, they, they're the last descendants of the bowery boys yes um uh i just wanted to pull in this quote about early the rapture um oh, yeah. rapture came up around this time in the early 2000s james murphy uh described an early show he said they came on and had a klaxon going for 10 minutes while everyone's trying to plug in their stuff <laughs> They out of tunely destroyed the place. I said, this is the best. This is terrifying. They weren't saying, hey, guys, hope you're having a good night. There was none of that. It was like after the show, they were going to jump into a sewer. <laughs> and they were fuckable. 
There's that's a lot of beautiful. fuckability yeah, yeah. discussions. Sewer, sewer creatures you can fuck. Yeah. That sounds like a lot of, of what people were responding to here. Yeah. And also just, I mean, as someone who's in a band, the 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 desperation to please the crowd is yeah. really difficult to avoid. Yeah. And we please would clap. never in a million years have the guts to just play a klaxon for 10 minutes and then suck. <laughs> and I really am envious that someone would because that's really cool. <laughs> yes. You do it and you'd be like, I'm so sorry for that. Yeah. We suck by accident and then apologize profusely. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, we're wow. Tokyo Police Club. Sorry. Sorry. Exactly. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry about that. Uh, uh, we were watching, this is like kind of similar, but we've just been down a big hole of like watching like early aughts TV hits. Mm. And so we were watching the Vines on Letterman. And oh we watched that video so many times when we were like starting this band and playing. Really? The video. Yeah. Oh, we would just like go into the house to take a break from jamming and just watch, watch it on repeat. It's it's really something else. I always thought that the Vimes were, Vimes were the lamest of those three bands by far, but it, that is absolutely somebody really fucking with uh like the idea of playing a a live. He was hit. genuinely mentally ill, yeah. and processing it through violence. I yes. mean, that was not. A, I mean, maybe it was a he picked his version of that from like the you know the mm-hmm. um the hall of rock yeah. cliches. <laughs> yeah, but he seemed to be very genuinely you know, going through that. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Uh, highly recommend looking it up. That's Vines on Leno. Long letter, Letterman. Letterman yeah. in like 2000. And of course, like doing something. Get Free. Yeah. Doing Get Free, which that song, I, I love that song. I remember oh, yeah. when that song was on the OC. The back hook in the of day. that song is a bend, a string bend on yeah. one note. It's, yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> they really, they did it. And they're Australian. So like that, yeah. that was when this, this started to really spread globally. Well, it's, it's it was when, like, oh, I can start a band. It's when yeah. the Vines turned into Jet is when everything started going sour. Yes. Yeah, and I mean Jet also was, and I feel like at this point maybe Jet is due for like a little bit of a little gentler treatment because they certainly got their yeah. knocks back in the day. Yes, but like they were just doing it too. They're like, oh, yeah, everyone's I mean, doing like old. We're just copying old bands from the seventies. Yeah, yeah. We'll yeah. just do that too. And everyone's like, hey, not you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the Pitchfork review is just like a, a short story about people throwing shit at Jet. Yeah. Yeah. Just, justice for Jet. Yeah. Justice, justice for, for Jet. Well, yeah, there's there's always got to be some kind of scapegoat, even yeah, when everyone really, yeah. sounds of essentially the same. And it's also like right now, it's like you'll see. So, I, I was just thinking about this, that you'll see so many articles or pieces that are like, where's all the, I mean, me and myself will say this, where's the rock music right yeah. now? And then like Greta Van Fleet comes up and they're like, we're, we're a rock furious. band. And everybody's like, fuck you. Not, How, what the fuck do you think you're doing doing a rock band thing? Not that kind of rock music. And they're like, with guitars? No. Yes. With uh, long hair? No. No. Fringe vest? Absolutely not. I think people really do uh, like are actually searching for new strokes right now. I think, yeah. yes. I mean, we're, we're kind of getting all, all over the place, but it's like, <laughs> I was trying to think about what is the closest to that. And I think maybe like car seat headrest uh, is like in yeah, that. Yeah, I think that's a really good pull. I think that it has a similar, although they're really LCD-ish too, I feel like. Yeah. They're a little more sprawling, a little less like tight, but yeah. Yeah, the, but they have that like cool, thing. cool, young, uh, kind of inscrutable, mm-hmm. uh, like cooler than thou aesthetic around them, you know, without being like super brandy or they don't have like a gimmick they're just like yeah it's just like him and his band just a rock band they're just I, a rock band yeah. yeah i think snail mail has some of that yeah that scene it's like just really good yeah. guitar music played by someone who seems like kind of indifferent yeah yeah about yes. it and i don't mean in terms of like her compositions but just like the way that she conducts yeah. herself on yeah. shows and, and stuff is very appealingly cool and aloof yeah i mean i guess that's the thing is that you want to be domed by your your rock star you in a do. way where you're like 
where it's like they don't really they're so good and they don't even really give a shit they don't care about yeah. me and or they're even and the music at all that's they're like the thing. Yeah, Greta Van Fleet like, you can see them sweat yeah, yeah. yeah you know you know that they're trying yeah. and that's which shouldn't be a sin but is definitely the cardinal sin in yeah. music it's like yeah. never let them see you try I saw yeah. an amazing video clip of one of the guys trying to play not trying a co- successfully playing a guitar solo with putting the guitar behind his head and playing it but then the guitar gets stuck in his long hair and a guitar oh tech God. has to come out and loosen the guitar from his hair so he can go back to playing. I have an Interpol story along those lines, but I don't, is there an Interpol portion of yes. this that maybe All I should right, we'll save it for? All right. yeah. <laughs> we'll, we, we will definitely make sure to get the yeah, yeah. Interpol shit is really funny. Um, Bless their hearts. Speaking yeah. of being seen trying. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, other nascent shit happening, like just... The Strokes are basically the arc of this band or of this book Yeah, is like from when they started to when they kind of, uh, I mean, they're still together and they're still playing shows. They're still making bangers. They're still making (laughs) music. So it feels disingenuous to say that they have, they imploded, but But they they kind of their They left all their, uh, the people that thought they were their buddies and they were all going to hang out at the same parties forever. They left them behind to go off and be like the international rock stars that they always were. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that everyone was a little bit sour about that. And so Mm -hmm. they were like, the Strokes sold out. Yeah. Right. (laughs) can't sell out when you start on RCA. No, you know, it's just a- <laughs> there's no selling out anymore. That doesn't that doesn't exist. That's a whole nother. Thank God. Thank yeah. God. Um. So yeah, the Strokes they like they met in elementary school. The 1970s are like don't sell out, and uh the nine the 2019s are like monetize me, daddy. Monetize well, me, they baby. It's like hey, it's like hey, can I monetize my walk to work somehow by <laughs> yeah. live streaming it? Or something, you By know. By the way, do you guys mind if I do some ads yeah. during this? Yeah. I, did, I took some sponsors. Not for your and... show, but I just yeah, I have my own personal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you don't get a cut even. That's just part of my deal. That's actually an amazing podcast bit to go on to other people's podcasts and be like, oh, I have to read my own ads for myself. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, me undies, they're amazing. I brought you guys some Harry's Razor samples. <laughs> Um, the yeah so they these these guys are like they go way back in this like New York City private school seat like fuck up scene oh, yeah. um, and they're definitely like they describe themselves as like they're the 13 year olds like having a coffee and a cigarette like pretending that they're 20 like they're just accelerated dudes and they're all like really good looking and they're all vaguely interested in music and they just sort of like uh, m- meld into a band. Yeah. It just happens. It sounds all very nat- very chill and natural. Which is confounding to me because the logistics of running a band in New York City are so difficult. Uh, that the idea that you would just kind of do it casually is uh, yeah. is hilarious. Well, especially so young too. Yeah. But also Albert Hammond Jr.'s dad basically funded their early years. Like Albert Hammond Jr., he I think he's from L.A. and he moved to New York in high school, and his dad like basically gave him a yeah. credit well, card and was money. like, "Go crazy." Wait, what? Albert Hammond was wrote or was in or wrote songs for the Mamas and the Papas, and sometimes all I need is the air that I breathe mm-hmm. is an Albert Hammond senior song. Oh fuck! And Radiohead apparently accidentally stole the melody from sometimes all I need is the air that I breathe for the bridge of creep. (laughs) And so if you look at like the songwriting credits for creep, Uh, Albert Hammond senior has a credit. So so he's got like all the the creep cash. Radiohead gets it too, but Albert Hammond senior gets some. He gets cut. So the strokes are kind of, uh, you know, funded by Radiohead. They're a Radiohead client state. Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) That's, that's incredible. And Um, it's like one of those disheartening things where you realize like, Oh, it's, it's, uh, it's all like, 20 people in all of the music industry yeah. and they all or in, in basically any industry but that was the knock yeah. yes. on the strokes for a long time is that they were that they're op- all rich kids they met yeah. at private school in switzerland and you know julian's dad started some big a modeling, modeling agency, agency. And like, 
but he I think Julian like um James Murphy was kind of just like a savant genius yeah. inter- and he wrote I mean my understanding is is this it and room on fire are literally Julian wrote everything, everything. yeah just everyone played the part yeah and he stood there with the mic which is also very smart mm-hmm. he stood there with just a microphone and looked like oh me I, don't I care just about do this the things yeah like every songs. guitar hook like 1251 yeah. all that shit that's amazing. Yes. Every instrument on 1251 is doing hooks the whole way through. <laughs> <laughs> I did I did not know that about Casablanca's. Yeah, he's a he's an auteur without marketing himself as one. Yeah. He's just like the sexy, slouchy uh lead singer guy. Uh that is incredible because those and those songs really do sound like band songs. Well, fuck it. Let's listen to some fucking strokes. We'll have some strokes. Right, let's take a two hour break and listen to yeah. the catalog. <laughs> this is like when I was reading the book, I was just like I was playing so I played their two dollar bill show. Oh yeah. Which is I just like, like the glowing stage yes. that uh, the Coppola directed. Yes. Yeah. Uh Roman Coppola directed also that. it. Like, like holy shit. It, yeah, they had this gorgeous light yeah, of you stage. mentioned twelve fifty one, so uh, there we go. And I was just watching it being like, they are so good. They are we, stupid good. We went through a phase like when we were writing the latest Tokyo record. We were like, you know what we should just learn to do is all of Room on Fire and do, <laughs> do gigs where we come back out for the encore and we're like, you don't have to stay, but we're playing all of Room on Fire. I and think that that would fucking own. Uh, one thing that I think is that bands do not play enough covers anymore. It's, it's tough because you don't want to outshine yourself. <laughs> and what we learned, we didn't get all the way through, but we learned like six of the songs, including this one. No and just way. looking at the way the guitar parts are arranged, it's just so no instrument is like doing anything redundant. Yeah. Both of the guitar players are doing like double stops, but like making like these beautiful inversions of the chords between yeah. them. It's all thought out. It's all like mathematic. It's incredible songwriting. Damn. They, they yeah, they, it's, it's so good. It's just, just, just like dumb and they're good. song is so hooky. Yeah. Ba, 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 ba. Uh, Fabrizio makes a joke that he's like, I still don't know how to play drums. I'll learn tomorrow. <laughs> like he's like very, he's really funny in this. I think the winners in this book of like the most charming people are like Fabrizio Moretti. Paul Banks is such a lunatic and is so, has the craziest, weirdest sense of humor I've ever heard in my entire right. life. Um, who else is great? Oh, the Kings of Leon actually came off uh, really well in this. I think they may maybe are going to get a reevaluation too. Wait, they got really big. Yeah. Someone yeah. was like, they must suck. But I think maybe they're like chill dudes. Yeah. No, they, they seem like cool, just like cool, nice guys. They were opening for the Strokes back in the day. Yes. Yeah. They, uh, they were taken under the Stroke. Remember that video where the flock of birds shits on them? No, I don't. <laughs> Do you remember this? Like vaguely. It's ringing a bell. There's like a viral video you can look up. I guess my role in this episode is just remembering all the viral videos. There's a viral video where like they're playing a concert and like a huge flock of birds flies over the stage oh, and they yeah. all get covered. That was in the news. Shit. That was like the in like the uh the best days of a snarky pitchfork. Yeah. Uh, like when they were posting the monkey pissing in its mouth to review that was also Jet, wasn't it? I I, <laughs> I just wanna say that this song this song sounds like the Cars if the Cars didn't give a shit about being how good they were, yep. which is Ooh. a fucking good way to sound. Yeah, absolutely. They're like, instead of being like, hey, we're the Cars, it's like, yeah, well, whatever. We're the yeah. fucking cars. cars. Who cares? Yeah, it's easy to write hooks. Yeah. There's 10 of them. I don't even care. This, it's easy to me. I don't care. I don't care at all. And that song's not even Reptilia. Yes. <laughs> which fucking owns. Reptilia is my favorite uh, stroke song. Let's do a second one. Yeah, br- bring it on. Remember when they did the like residency on Conan before Room on Fire came out? No. Every week. So it was only for a month. So it was only four. But they did every week. They debuted a new Stroke song on Conan. That's extremely. That's extremely cool and it's good. A, it's extremely 2003 yeah, yeah. or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. This, is a, this yes. is a rollout strategy that people will pay attention to. Him. 
The song fucking rips. Oh, it's so good. Um, the way this show, like, everyone's kind of in awe of them. All these, like, bloggers, writers, scene people are just like... The, <laughs> Jim Merlis, who's the uh, big... started Big Hassle PR, who's their PR guy, said it was like hanging out with a bunch of Holden Caulfields. <laughs> yes, that makes sense. Um, Does he mean that as a diss? Or? I think he it means has to that be. as, like... Kind of a diss, but also more like a, Although, oh my God, these guys. I like, guess if you're what? the Strokes publicist, you have to be able to thread the needle of yeah. like comparing them to Holden Caulfield in a way that's knowing, but not too insulting. Yeah. Yes. Uh, Paul Banks described them as um, boyfriends did not like the Strokes. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good line. That's a good yeah. line, Paul. Uh they, uh, another dude said uh, they were detached from the scene and yet they were everything cool about the scene at the same time. They had that gang mentality that everyone seemed to want to be a part of. And that sums it up. Yeah. yeah. Like You could probably read this entire book as just a ton of people trying to sit at the Strokes table and not getting to yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, they conjured up this entire like nostalgic world around it and also like a multi-million dollar music business yeah. <laughs> just around trying to be friends with like Julian Casablanca yeah. who did, just genuinely didn't give a shit and didn't know about it. Yeah. Yes. Um, th- the crawling of like celebrities out of the woodwork once the strokes got big of just oh, like yeah. Drew Barrymore literally called their manager and was like, can you get me backstage at Coachella? I want to hang out with the strokes. <laughs> and she, they, he was like, sure. And she goes backstage after their show with like Fabrizio is there by himself. And then they start like making out and then they dated for five years <laughs> just because yeah. Drew Barrymore was like, I want that. I want that. That was in, there was a big article and like Mojo or one of those magazines right before Room on Fire came out all about this was exactly when I was paying a lot of attention obviously yeah all about you know they followed each member of the Strokes around and talked to each of them in turn ah. about how the record was going to be each and, and Fab was just talking about Drew Barrymore all the time and that was a big it's part like, of the uh, I guess I'm dating Drew Barrymore now and even the rest of the Strokes kind of hovered around Julian in a way that was like a microcosm of how everyone else did where he was like yeah I don't know it's a record leave me alone and everyone else was like the record's good yeah. I married Drew Barrymore yeah <laughs> I just like that Drew Barrymore she didn't ask for Fab she asked for the Strokes and I think whoever was back there she would have dated for yeah. Five years because they were all equally like, oh yeah. I mean, she did oh, yeah. whichever stroke. Uh, the Fabrizio, sexiest name that goes for uh, a long way. True. Yeah. Yes. Although they all have they all have very good names. Yeah. Um, nope. The early the other early strokes thing I'll share from the book is um, our our bud Rob Sheffield. Uh, this is Rob Sheffield who has written for Rolling Stone mm-hmm. since like the nineties. Our close personal friend who we do karaoke with often. Yes, he's a he. We I can't we wait love for the Rob. oral history of this podcast. Yes. Oh my god, <laughs> we we love us some Rob. Um, he was describing the Strokes uh, show like they did the Halloween show. He said the entrance music was Jonathan Richmond's "The Morning of Our Lives." Uh, but just the end of it when he says, we're young now. Now's the time to have faith in what we can do. It was so unbelievably exciting. It was the kind of uh, moment that made me grateful to be alive. Ooh, I got goosebumps. That's, yeah. that's, that's amazing. That, some, that's what it feels like. And that's why all my cynicism about like, oh, being in the scene, they just want to be friends with them. Yeah. Also, I'm so susceptible to it too because <laughs> oh, yeah. that's what it feels like when it's really good. You're young. Yeah. No the world is exciting. Yeah. 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 When do you form an identity around it? Yeah. yeah. And also, you, know. you know, it's kind of like uh, mean, that Mean Girls thing. Or everybody's had this kind of experience where, like, you totally uh, uh, resent and think that, like, the popular person near your social cl- clique is not, is actually lame and you're, mm-hmm. you don't need to be friends with them. And then you they pay you one that. ounce of attention or, like, you get drawn in and you're like, actually, they this person fucking rules and everybody else uh, it just thinks that they're, uh, they suck. All, you know? of, all of the you know, kind of interpersonal garbage and the business side of things, like all that tension seems secondary, at least in the book of like, 
the Strokes created these live music experience for people that basically changed their lives. They put music on record that then changed other people's lives. Yeah. Like they d- they did that. You can't take that away from and them. And they barely moved. <laughs> yes. Like literally and uh, metaphorically. Yeah. You know, they just they didn't even yeah. seem they to just like stand there high and yeah. just and I mean that gives it so much more energy yeah. too, but That's yeah. oh man, you're right. They did not move. Unmovable. Um other upstarts, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Karen O was like Karen O seems fun to hang or at least seemed like she was fun to hang out with in the in the 2000s uh, D- Dave Sytek from TV on the radio said Karen can rage and everyone's invited <laughs> I love that, that was the vibe of those shows yeah, yeah. like yeah yeah as was basically so she Karen O and Nick Zinner had a, a folk band first called Unitard did you know this no I did not Everyone, I feel like freak folk was just this weird thing that was going to be big until everyone realized it was like needed to be unlistenable to exist. Yes. yes. Like, can we just repurpose all of you as rock bands instead? Like Adam Green, cool. But, yeah. Like, just yeah. write Jessica Simpson and we'll put you on MTV. <laughs> <laughs> or like the, yeah, like same with like the anti-folk guys. Like, yeah. uh, God, who is that guy? History of punk rock in the Lower East Side. Ooh. Uh, That's not Jeffrey Lewis, is it? Jeffrey Lewis, yeah. Okay. Yeah, like that kind of thing where it's like, this is awesome and it has its own thing, but there's no way that this could be like big or popular. Yeah, and Jeffrey be- Lewis stuck with it, which is yeah. why we don't know his name. Yes. Because <laughs> <laughs> he has cred. Yes. That goes cred. to show what cred's worth. He has cred and we don't know him. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, Karen O has a great, uh, obviously like the whole thing of Karen O is, is Karen O. She yeah. moves the way- infinitely. It's the exact opposite. <laughs> yes. Strokes. Nonstop. I was watching a 2003 live show of theirs and just like my mouth was open the entire time it's just like holy shit this is a performer um and she has all these crazy outfits she says one of her early shows she said i wanted to go up there looking like a sweaty punk rock star uh so i wore a white tank top and heart-shaped pasties underneath my plan was to douse myself in olive oil before i went on stage i thought if it seeped in it looked kind of sexy but it just looked like i had humongous nipples (laughs) (laughs) but there you go this is the same i feel like this is maybe this is why i didn't run or read the book but that's like that's so thought out yes yeah. that's so on purpose like all of what it's not like oh i'm gonna pour whiskey over my head it'll yeah. be crazy she's like i'm gonna do something that's only good for the aesthetic and also yeah. didn't turn out to be good for the aesthetic right. either but still like that's it is amazing how um on purpose all the legendary stuff ends up being yeah, yeah. it's it's definitely not like like Looking like a sweaty punk rocker because you did sweaty punk rock things is not the same thing as dousing yourself in olive oil. Because I sweat like fucking crazy on stage <laughs> and I don't look cool at all. Maybe you should try some wet. olive oil. Yeah, <laughs> maybe sad. that's what I'm missing. <laughs> I, I love a nice wet band. Oh boy, <laughs> love, a, love a good wet band. I, I actually do enjoy when I can when you can really see. I want to see the band working at playing the music, yeah. not working at getting the crowd to like them. Yes. Yeah. So like one of our my favorite live bands that now Molly has seen too uh, recently is uh, the OCs mm. and holy shit you can see Jonathan Dwyer uh, sweating from every pore on his body right. because he is playing the fuck out of that guitar yeah. when he when he's on stage. Yeah, he's and he's not he's not he's, saying please clap. Yes, <laughs> and he's not also dousing himself in olive oil. Although I'm sure that would look very silly. That would look. Uh, very silly. I think I heard it was good for your skin. Now yeah. I don't know where we're at on olive yeah, oil. Yeah, yeah. It's okay. Karen O has, you know, she still looks great. Yeah. Yep, so it's all that, it's all that olive oil. oil. Yeah. It's all the antioxidants or whatever. Um, they're, they, they touch on freak folk and like anti-folk a little bit. I just, 
Paul Banks apparently used to play acoustic like in this scene. Sure. And he describes an early show where he said, I played a song uh, called On the Esplanade, but pronounced it Esplanade. And some guy called out, it's pronounced Esplanade. And another guy called out, you look like Luke Skywalker. <laughs> wow. He does look like Luke Skywalker. He does. Like post-plastic surgery, Mark Hamill. Oh, my yeah. God. Um, so... Paul Banks says, uh, if I got everything I wanted from girls, I wouldn't write shit. So Interpol comes from Paul Banks longing for uh, longing for ladies. Yes. Boy, if that's if that was his big move to get ladies was I'm going to form a band that's like sort of Joy Division adjacent. And we're going <laughs> to we're going to all wear suits and I'm going to hire a guy with a holster to play bass. I think I understand what it was. <laughs> yes. There was. There is some fundamental thing in his personality <laughs> yeah. that kind of turned people away. That's that's his, that's his records, tactic. Yeah. Great records. Um, he said, you know what ladies love is when you uh, go up and kind of uh, uh, moan in a monotone baritone about uh, how many couches you have. Yeah. Hey, I, we've got 200 couches. Well, so that song came out when we were in high school, and I still don't know what he says, but it sounds in the chorus like he says Graham Wright. <laughs> so that was to all of us through all of high school. Yeah. That was just the lyric of the song. Was my, that was my theme song. Amazing. Um, he he describes in early, uh, early songwriting, he said, before Interpol, I had a song where I sang, There Are No Pretty Girls. Uh, I did that song in my apartment in 1996. The chorus was the sound my phone made when I took it off the receiver for a while. I was experiencing very deep depressions at that age. <laughs> Wonderful. That's, that, is, that is what very deep depression sounds that like. That sounds like a bop to me. Just yeah, in 1996, <laughs> that was how depressed you could be. Yeah, yeah. It was the end of history. Your phone made a noise. You, were, yeah. you felt sort of a general Just ennui. imagining him in a, like a Lower East Side apartment that he probably paid $70 a month for with a, a landline phone off the hook strumming listlessly at a guitar like to the dial tone yeah not plugged in electric guitar yeah, exactly. it's not really in tune I, I wish he had that on tape but i would like to hear it um i think it would be very inspiring the paul Banks phone tapes oh my god um I, interpol sound i don't know they they like all kind of link up and they're like yeah we're interpol they're all like guys aren't they like guys who look like each other in, at NYU and they're like, oh, we all look like each yeah. other. We should start yeah. a band. They would see each other walking around campus and be like, that guy's striking. Like, yes. I want to be. Um, Eleanor Friedberger from the Fiery Furnaces, just t she talks about living in Williamsburg and how you would notice who was like, like you because everyone most people were Polish yep <laughs> and so people were either Polish or Puerto Rican and then if you were like a white person you were like oh I should be in a band with this person wearing like a weird shirt with like a funny haircut and yeah. it's like ah yes my band member <laughs> that was the original lyric to most people are DJs most people are Polish but it didn't quite sing as well so I had to change that so the all of these things sort of coagulate and then uh, as one bit that I personally like to do in this podcast is uh, then 9-11 happens. Yes. 9-11 super happens. 9-11 extremely happens. Yeah. So, you know, uh, I think my favorite story so far from 9-11 is um, Sebastian Bach from uh, Poison uh, living right. in New no, Jersey. Uh, oh, wait, uh, not Poison. Skid Row. Um, Skid Row. Right. Li uh, he's living in New Jersey and he like is driving. And when he finds out about 9-11, he like turns the car around and goes and like forces his kids to get out of school and like 
takes off for the Canadian border. <laughs> he tries to escape America. He's like, oh my God, this is it. It's happening. He, he's he got like construction workers working on his house and he's like, guys, you got to get out. <laughs> wow. This is it. It's nuclear war. He like, invented it's over. prepping. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he did. Oh my God, he's he, such he a prepper. Be a prepper. Oh, I bet, he, I bet he's got some bug out bags in well, his house. Well, now he does because yeah. he probably realized halfway along the drive, he's like, we don't even have yogurt or anything. Yeah, I don't have any uh, kind bars. Or... This car wasn't even hidden under a tarp in the forest. <laughs> what am I doing? Yeah, no, re- super unprepared. Um, yeah, so 9 11. in the book? <laughs> what? Sebastian Bach? No. no that was in that Sebastian Bach. That was oh, his right, book. Right, of course. Because um, when you write a memoir and you were making music around two, 2001, you have to legally, you're contractually bound to say something about 9-11 oh yeah like destiny's child had this like basically pr written autobiography that came out in 2002 and Mm -hmm. they were just kind of like 9-11 oh yeah so bad we in destiny's child unequivocally (laughs) condemn (laughs) al-qaeda and the perpetrators of this heinous act (laughs) central statement yeah yeah so like 9-11 is like it's multiple people said they saw the twin towers fall from their windows. Yes. Like it is, uh, I I have looked up satellite photos of the dust cloud after September 11th and, uh, just kind of mentally noted that it went right over, you know, like it would have been right above the sky from this very building that we're in right now. Oh yeah. No, any, anywhere close to the Brooklyn, Manhattan. I mean, we can see the freedom tower from, uh, when we go out the window or, Go out on our front street. We can see freedom from our house. Yes. So yeah, the uh, 9-11 is described by uh, Alex Wagner, who's a journalist. Say uh, They said, what happened with Bush versus Gore in 2000 in combination with 9-11, if you believed in institutions, if you believed in the moral arc of the universe inevitably bending toward justice, those two events are cataclysmic. Now you knew there were no systems in place that were going to make it okay for you. Your life was going to be something you determined. Yes. Huh. Yeah. I was too young to have that realization when 9-11 happened. Well, oh, same samesies. <laughs> well, it's the kind of rolling thing. I mean, this is my uh, like my political analysis of millennials is that you like your earliest thought, your earliest memories are basically like Bush v. Gore, low elections don't matter. Yeah. Uh, 9-11, like sa- safety, security doesn't matter. Uh, endless war, uh, you know, mm-hmm. like you live in a like an imperial state. And then like the uh, economic meltdown, it's like, the, yeah, there are no, there. it's like all those things together is like there are no systems. Yeah. I, so, I totally buy that. Well, I wonder what this, this is probably beyond the scope of this podcast and certainly beyond the scope of my capacity for reasoning actually, but let's do it. <laughs> let's try. I wonder what that means for Canadian millennials who had generally like were, like all of those things worked on Canadians too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But with the very like, there's a real cultural consciousness in Canada that we're not America. We're not America. Yeah. Oh, and so God, all I'm, of I'm sure that you would shit have that be. happened was very plainly not happening to us. And everyone, like a big part of the narrative was like, boy, look at what they're up to. Those zany Americans at it again. And even with like, you know, the economic collapse, which did totally wreak a similar havoc on Canada. Yeah. But our banking system didn't collapse. And and so the jobs still got fucked because we're so tied to America. Yeah. But it's I, I that's probably an interesting thing to examine. That, I've never even thought of that. The the other nine eleven story worth sharing from this is uh, uh Tunde uh from the uh, from TV on the radio. He basically shares a story of like he, of course everyone's drinking uh at, on nine eleven because uh because what else would you do? So like the everyone's world at the bar. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and he says they see this guy in a suit who like kind of stops and says, "Oh whoa, uh, World Trade Center." Like a lot of my clients were in there. 
I just lost a lot of my clients. And uh, Dave Sytek from TV on the radio like has to be held back from almost hitting that guy uh, <laughs> because it's just like so callous and, and cold and corporate. And all these stories sound fake. <laughs> yeah, right. And he said he says he's like that guy in the suit. He was the canary in the fucking coal mine. I feel like New York was about to turn into what it is now way earlier. And then 9-11 paused it. I think that's oh, kind of important to know is like the acceleration Whoa. of gentrification was kind of like put on hold by way a second we need to fix this smoking hole in the bottom of the island yes and you know all the emotional baggage that goes along with it yeah i mean i remember even when i was moving here in like 2009 my ohioan parents were like but is it safe mm. oh yeah was, the first time i came to the states on tour to new york on tour my parents were like oh new york city yeah, yeah. Like it's but, not it, like but the it, warriors. Yeah, it, well, it's, well, <laughs> but what's, that's what a certain generation of people has in their heads. Yeah. Like I have a lot of friends. A lot of my friends from college are from um, like Long Island and Jersey mm-hmm. and Westchester. And like when I told them that I was moving to Bushwick, Brooklyn, they were like, "What? What the fuck?" Like the last time I thought about Bushwick, it was on fire, and I was like, "Well, it's not on fire anymore." <laughs> there are a lot of cool bars. Yes. I mean, I mean, I moved to Harlem with, with the first yeah. that I moved here, and, and all my again, all my Ohio relatives were like, "Oh my god!" Did really? you just tell them that's where the Clintons live? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that would have that would have made them feel better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um. So okay, 9/11. so nine eleven bad. We Great. were nine eleven. I think we can all agree it was um it was not good. Good for the music scene though. Great so for the music really, scene. it's hard to judge anything. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So then we get into the period of like uh, everyone. The, the, blows the rallying up. cry of Al Qaeda. Uh, was re- was really let's keep uh, uh, New York's music underground. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they loved they loved pianos. Yes, they, did. <laughs> they, were, they were like keep Monster Island open. Oh my god! <laughs> um, so all of these bands start to like the the success machine accelerates. There's major labels mm-hmm. doing the classic dance of um, taking people out to dinner, getting them expensive wine, buying them drugs. Like multiple bands have these stories of like yeah, it took like. We spent like we drew it out for like two or three months of just like dinners and dinners and dinners. Oh yeah, <laughs> highly recommend. Did you? Way. I was gonna say, did you? We were in like this? the post death cab major label thing, so it was a little less debauched. Yeah, mm-hmm. but I definitely there there was a year where I got a steak dinner out of every major label. In All right, there, most of which don't exist anymore, and I'm <laughs> proud to have <laughs> contributed to their <laughs> bankruptcy. Get that get that steak and, and although go. if they signed us, that we would have contributed to it a lot faster. Yes, <laughs> this the steak is the most important. Um. The like the strokes basically start almost immediately falling apart once they start touring on um, is this it because they they're just doing a lot of drugs. It's the classic kind of musical exploitation story of like tour, 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 show, show, shows like let's get in there and do it. Um, Nick Valencia from the strokes talks about like he got a seven thousand dollar bill from trashing a hotel room once. Uh, you don't have to trash hotel rooms. Oh, the classic rock. Yeah, yeah. They it. put us on the road and there was a hotel room and I just, I had to destroy but it. it seems and rack like up they, they had a lot girl. of steam. There's a lot of pressure that they seem to be blowing off by doing this outlandish shit. And it was, it was the last era of like rock stars. Yeah. Yeah. Although I know on this pod, we've talked about that corn were the last rock stars, but I think it might've actually been, been the, the strokes. strokes. Well, we're, we're, we're inch- groping closer to identifying what was the last true rock band. We are. I think that, there's a maybe a better case to be made for corn in that new metal was genuinely a new creation. Yes. And when you get through to the strokes, they were consciously or not consciously doing pastiche. Yeah. yeah. Like the strokes trashing hotel rooms yeah. and yeah. fucking groupies yeah. was all done knowingly or not. <laughs> ironic, kind of. Not quite, but with a sort of meta remove yeah. where it was like, this is what's expected. I mean, I look at yes. like an, an Interpol, a band that had way less of a reputation for debauchery mm-hmm. and were actually kind of like, not poor kids, but seemed like a much more 
um, genuine story of just like weird random kids who got together and made a band yeah. and then presented themselves like bosses. Yeah. The Strokes were all a bunch of rich kids who, and nothing, they, the songs were amazing, so who yeah. gives a shit? Yeah. But came together <laughs> under much more artificial circumstances in a lot of ways and then play acted yes. like people who had come from the streets and now we're just gonna like blow all this money destroying hotel rooms. Yes. And that inversion and that all of the stuff swirling around it makes me feel like it's a little nostalgic. It's a little uh, uh, I mean, recreative. That, yeah. is a, that is a great point about you know the the Strokes being among among the contenders for the last true rock band. Maybe we should do this as a whole episode. <laughs> or maybe if we do a live show, we could do the people do like wanted a, a true rock band so much that they bestowed it on the Strokes. Yes. But yeah. I don't think it but, ever. But, it didn't fit well. But and they they rebelled against it. I think yeah. that's part of this too. But yeah. you're right that the, that as as we're looking at this like end of end of the the first push of rock music, which I mean I think we all say is like comes in like the early aughts. It's like yeah, Corn and the new metal stuff is a, a total invention, and they were also. I mean, I would say like corn was like more popular than they also strokes. sold way. Yeah, oh, I think they sold way more that. records than yeah, the strokes. Yeah. That's the other and, thing. And they were like internationally bigger in a bigger way and yeah. a total new invention. And then like the strokes for how big as they are and as good as they are, are like this kind of boutique, like little invention of, of like trying to repackage something that came before in a modernly popular way. Yeah. And that's a lot of what killed the strokes as the original first two albums. Cool band was that like, and Julian <laughs> talks about a lot about this openly where he's maybe even in this book where he's <laughs> like, the Killers came out after us and like had Mr. Brightside and they were like this huge band yeah. and that was us and I didn't understand why we didn't get that. So yeah, yeah. he goes off and makes first impressions with yeah. Dave Kahn yeah. instead everyone gets mad at them. Because <laughs> everyone wanted them to be the, like the Killers were never the great new rock band. Yeah. Which they wanted it too much. Yes. Which in I, retrospect I, is cool but the, the Strokes, everyone was like, great, you don't care. And then he was like, oh, but we do care. Look, we like <laughs> made the drums sound good on this record. Yeah. And I was like, fuck you. Yeah, no, trying is trying is not cool. I, this, I think I've mentioned this on the uh, pop before, but I've come around to the Killers a lot as as being, I think, genuinely good. But I remember being mad about them in, two, yeah. in 2004 but because cool. I felt that they were they were stealing the fire from Franz Ferdinand, my beloved, right. came out that time. Mm. But he was, I mean, the Killers, unlike the rest of those bands, were just like, we want to be as big as we can possibly yes. be and we'll do what's necessary to and do that. And they did it. And, and they, they did got it. it. Yeah. So, okay, that's kind of more authentic. And we than... saw them last year and you know what? Uh, they were good. It was They it was... opened with Mr. Brightside when I saw them. Yeah. That's really? a flex. Yeah. yeah. That is and then they flex. kept the energy up for the entire show. It was great. Wow. That's amazing. They the, that um, uh, strokes killers dichotomy. The, they like pinpoint that in the book because uh, who, I can't remember who said it, but like the killers fucking wanted it so much, mm-hmm. like that they the and because you know the that, strokes had to be they had to come first and they had to fail in all of the ways mm-hmm. that uh, the killers could look at that and say, oh, we're not going to do it like this and we're not going to fail. Strokes in this way. crawled so or strokes walked so killers could run. But also, yeah. I feel like that's very much like. New York wasp prep mentality versus desert Mormon mentality where it's, well, it's like, we're not going to do something class working class. Yeah. The killers were yeah. working class yeah. dudes. Their no, we're parents were cocktail in- waitresses. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. then they didn't, you know, Brennan Flowers never tr- trashed out Tom in his life because he's been like a sober married Mormon the whole yes. way through. And yeah. look, the disdain that I put on that when I said that, why? Yeah. Why is it <laughs> he's, he's happier than any of us will be? Yes, he's so well adjusted. And yet, when we, as we do this, I'm like, I still want to be the fucking strokes guy and get strung out and throw TV out of a, 
uh, and a, a hotel. I guess that's why we maybe in some sense culture, that's why we want the rock and roll yeah. thing. Yeah. So yeah. we need someone to make our flaws seem amazing and godlike. Yes. And think that, well, we're just one guitar away from, we don't have to fix any of our problems. We yeah. just have to write a song. Yeah. yeah. And then our problems become assets. Oh my God. That's very true. That is very true. I'm still trying to turn my problems into assets by learning how to do synthesizers better. Yeah. Oh, I'd, I'd say stick with podcasts. That's the new, <laughs> that's, that's the new thing. Podcast, yeah. the I new know, rock and roll. I don't know if you've uh, checked out the Chapo Trap House tour itinerary <laughs> versus the Tokyo Police Club tour itinerary, <laughs> but the Chapo venues are much bigger. Oh wow. my God. <laughs> and expenses much lower. Yes, ah, that is true. You don't have to haul around guitars for your boys. <laughs> for now. For now. Who knows? You could expand. Eventually, I'll, I'll when I get my one-man band going and start opening for Chapo, I'll have to... Uh, no, that's going to be the first impressions of Earth yeah, when they're yeah. like, hey, we can be more successful if we did musical comedy yes. podcasts. It's, that's the what I really want to do is direct of podcasts. Yes. <laughs> what I really want to do is be in a band. Yeah. Oh, God. Yep. Um, yeah. So, that would be a good podcast. You interview podcasters about their true passion. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Oh God! The yeah, so like the wheels are kind of coming off for the Strokes. The House of Jealous Lovers happens. Yes, like a thing. Two thousand three ish, which is a they. That's definitely pinpointed as like a watershed moment. And I'm like in my experience with this. This is when I'm really coming online. This is when like we all have jobs now. We're all jamming now, and all my friends like House of Jealous Lovers. I'm like, why? I don't like it. Um, House of Jealous Lovers basically sat on the shelf for a year because the Rapture were so nervous about the production that James and Co. gave it. They were like, whoa, whoa, whoa. It's this is it's too dancey and it's too rock and it's too aggressive and like I don't know what you guys are doing. Do we know what it sounded like before James Murphy got his hands on I it? I don't know. I would love to hear see a live version of this from like 2002. Yeah. I doubt that exists. I mean, he is incredible. Even that like very much maligned Arcade Fire record that he produced. Oh no, that oh. that album's good. I All like the that grooves album. are incredibly yeah. good. Yeah, and this is too like that. Even though if it's a remix or whatever, that no, the, like the hi hat and the cowbell or whatever that is that's hanging along there. Yeah, come on. Yeah, the gro- the grooves are unassailable. The song fucking owns. Too. Yeah. I so mean, that's really the other thing to say it up yeah, in the scene. about all this music is that it's uh, really good. It's, it's good. really all slaps. Yeah, it's very good. <laughs> 9-11, bad. That, music all the music, time. yeah, yeah. yeah. Good. Uh, J- James talked about kind of becoming LCD and becoming this, like, head of DFA. Wait, so do he, they talk about his 30th birthday in this in this book? He mentions it in that he received 30 lines of cocaine on a, I forget which kind of record it was. I forget it's, whose record. It's probably, like, a can um, or a chic album or something. Yeah. Okay. Um, that's all. He said, he called, he's like, that was the cocaine era of New York. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, true. Evidently. <laughs> that, you know, yeah, sure. Sure. Um, really good riff, too, by the way. Oh, yeah. Oh, all yeah. The, the, yeah. The, the bass tone, the fact that he only says like five words in the entire song. Yeah. Every part of this. But he this. sells the fucking yeah. hell out of him. Yep. Um, he he talks about, he said, uh, Tim Goldworthy, uh, he just gave me confidence, this is James Murphy. Uh, I, went out, I went out all the time and I yelled at people and dived off the bar. I was never mean or cocky. I was having fun. It was so easy to be the most fun guy at the party now. After time, suddenly it became the late 60s and 70s for me. I'm going to do tons of drugs and say crazy shit, and I'm going to be in the movie. That's how he referred to, like, 
really just gaining his own self-confidence. See, it's also meta. Yeah. They knew that in, on some level, they knew that they were in a recreation or yes. they were in yeah, a yeah. movie. Yeah. Because they could, then you could take that role. You could find, oh, I'm going to be the that guy of this. I yeah. saw that already. And it's even James's approach to music where people were like handing him stuff and he was like, oh, that's just that sample. That's just that sample. Yeah. And yeah. he's like, well, I've just recognized the samples. So now I'll just do them again. It's, the the winners of this book and era are the people who can see the scene from above. Mm-hmm. Not like the Strokes didn't. I don't think they did. I think they were too in it because they were like out of their minds on drugs every night, just trying to blow off steam from the crazy pressures that were everyone was putting on them. Because they were supposed to fill a certain role yeah. in the narrative that everyone was. It's yeah. like, do you ever read that book, uh, Time Quake, like that late period Kurt Vonnegut novel? No, I don't Molly's think I have. The, I love Vonnegut. I've never it read that. It is super fucking good. And it's the premise of the book is basically that like at some point uh, in, you know, 1998 or something, everyone just reverts to 10 years earlier okay. and relives the intervening period and is aware they're reliving it, but is completely powerless to do anything differently. They just do all the same stuff again. <laughs> oh and then the God. conceit of the book is it start, it's sort of like the, the crisis event is at the end of it, everyone gets free will back all of a sudden and it's crazy. Mm-hmm. But that sense of like being trapped in a recreation of something that has come before yeah. and like cascading towards either success or catastrophe or both in the case of the strokes. Yeah. That feels like how those guys were at. Yeah. You know, I mean, they can cry all the way to the bank, but like, yeah, they sure. really were like, they're smart enough guys to know on some level that they're being that band and they're going in that direction. Yeah. But also it seems like they were trapped by everyone else's yeah. expectations that they would be exactly that. Totally. That is a, um, how, how would you say a big mood I would say of right now that mm. that yeah. feeling of recurrence that starts coming. I mean, I think that that would be like one of the major themes of post nine eleven world that seems to be accelerating is just that theme of recurrence, accelerating nostalgia, being trapped in a sense of reliving some kind of past, even if you don't really have a memory of it. Yeah, and I mean, it's something that we've been talking about on Chapo quite a bit of of like, especially since twenty sixteen, and especially even like now that the primaries are 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 looping up again and that and this is like specifically for us who cover politics but that sense of like everything that we hear is something that we have heard before regurgitated and even not that different of a way but that sense that like uh like i think matt said at some point like everything pointed towards trump getting elected and nothing point points beyond it's like we're in the time quake now yeah yeah like we did the repeat and now we're like now what? everyone has free will again and no one knows what the fuck to do with it yeah so the world is just like shaking on its foundations and uh, I'm still playing the guitar. <laughs> Hell yeah. Um, the Losing My Edge is detailed a bit in go. this. Losing My Edge is kind of the anthem of all of this. Yeah, because Losing My Edge is also, it's the reaction to what happens when like caring so much about references and the past like eats you alive. Yeah. Um, and just it, it's looking at what is happening literally at that moment. Like uh, Andy Greenwald, the writer, he says, Losing My Edge sticks its nose and all the parts you're supposed to ignore, jealousy, resentment, sarcasm, age. Yeah. Um, and he, he's describing James at this time. He said, James stood around bored, uh, tapping his feet at punk shows for so long that the idea of doing blow and dancing until dawn wasn't absurd. It was absurdly appealing. Yes. Yes. Because James is kind of, unlike the Strokes, who are quite young, James is like in his early 30s 33 when point. he starts. I so got two years. Kind of I got two years to start. I got, I got one. <laughs> He like he uh he's he's seen this before. He's he's seen this. The, he's the aware that it's a recursion. Yeah. yeah. Which is why maybe and he's he pointing becomes it out. sort of the uh like the 
point man for this yeah, whole yeah. narrative. Yeah, I mean, this is perhaps one of the most wonderfully sarcastic songs ever, ever created. And also just like, again, when we talk about the sense of like having a project that you're doing, like mm. as far as like first single, like the first piece of information that you put into the world about your band, there is, I don't think, any more perfect statement mission than LCD Sound System Losing My Edge as like, this is what the band is. This is what we're about. Yeah. Everything that we do in the future will be under this somehow. If you like this, it you it points you directly into what the our entire thing is. You get what my deal is. You get what the whole thing. It's it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's perfect. Statement. It's everything that kids also love. Like when you're 21, there's nothing more appealing than the idea that you've seen it all already. Yeah, yeah. That you're mm. losing your edge. That you're the one that's passed all of it, and you, like you know, you've been to all these parties, and of course, you have no idea and, what it really feels like yeah, to yeah. be 33 or 43 or 53 or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Yes. But that makes it even more appealing because again, you want. Oh yeah, like not only am I at the party, I'm over the party. And yeah. it's also like that dual thing. And this is like definitely my experience with it, where it's like I listen to this, you know. In the first time when I was already like a DJ at my college rock station, I might have even already been producing the show, and I had listened to this for the first time, and I'm like, "Oh, this is this is me. This is a hundred me exactly. I know all this thing, but also I'm going to assiduously Google every band that he mentions in this and download all their albums onto my iPod because I need." To be as cool as this guy. Yeah. Yeah. But who is already exactly as cool as I already am. You're at the party, but you're over the party. You're still at the party. Yes. yes. And, when you're over and the you're party. Dancing. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> then you can really actually let go because now you don't care what people think. Yeah. And of course, when you're 21 and you think that you're over it, you don't care. That's, you know, you're not more. Yeah. But that's what music is What was for. that? Test phrase? Molly? The, oh, th- this comes from there's a there's a recent uh, the cut profile about Jax Taylor, star of uh, Vanderpump Rules. I don't know if you fuck with Vanderpump, but they're referring to this guy when he's got got cast on this reality show, and they they said uh, he's basically he's he's totally went through the meat grinder of the L.A. auditioning world. Uh, he he's thinking you know there's no honor among thieves, and his fuck jar was empty, and I feel like James Murphy's fuck jar was empty, mm-hmm. and he made a banger about it. Yeah. Uh, you have to, I mean, I feel like there's maybe two models of, of being like a rock star. And the first is having like the boundless energy of youth, uh, mm. that propels you or, you know, boundless energy might be a weird thing to say about like the strokes who seem to like at least project that they kind of list through life, but they do have that. It like, takes so much energy to be on stage yeah, yeah. in front of, I mean, we've never played to anything approaching the crowds they were playing to. Like the people were so adoring mm-hmm. and did not move yeah. and then not do an encore. I mean, that took, unless, unless they Truly are the chillest people in the universe. Yeah. It's like you don't write those songs if you don't yeah. care. Yeah, you have to hold yourself in and yeah. never. Like, did Julie Custom like a smile ever? Yes, I know. Oh, you know, oh. <laughs> that's gotta be really hard to do. It's just a different. It's it's turning that energy in a very different direction. But totally. still, so it's either the boundless energy of youth, or you have to like push through until you have no. Oh, the no, fuck jar is empty. Until the fuck jar yeah. is empty, and yeah. then you're ready to, and then you're ready to 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 do it. And there's there's no artificial uh, uh, dumping of the fuck jar. Life. Life empties your fuck jar for yes. you. Yeah. You can try to do it. You can accelerate it by doing things like drugs, I guess. Or going to a therapist three times a or week. Or going to a therapist sure. three times a week. Um, but yeah, the, the fuck jar is going to empty like one way James or the Murphy other. For, and then three times a week. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's intense. <laughs> three times a week for decades. Since he was like a kid, yeah. The James Murphy's Because someone experience. great is about his therapist. therapist yes. Yeah. And someone great is gone. Um, the, to go back to the strokes and how they like were not able to handle what was thrown at them. 
um, Mark Spitz said of being like a rock star at this time. He said, you had to be Nick Drake and you had to be Liam Gallagher in the same package. You have to be a real sensitive artist person and you have to say, bring it, bring the fucking horde on. I'm going to lead it. And yeah. the killers came in and were like, oh, yeah, oh, sure. Yeah. I can be both those guys. Or like, yeah, I don't even have to think about it. That's mm-hmm. just what that's our total package. And the Strokes did not have that. Yeah. If you take your eye off the ball for a second, like in for, to enjoy it, yeah. for instance, <laughs> yeah. uh, it's hard to keep all those plates spinning mm-hmm. once you get distracted by an after party or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And amazing debut album. Everyone was like, uh, so what's the second album going to be? Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. And also, you don't have time to make it because you like the, sing- the single just broke in Paraguay. So we're going to need you down there for two weeks. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Strokes, please come to Paraguay. <laughs> Strokes, come to Paraguay. Uh, no, it's like fucking True Detective or something where it's like it, he Nick Pizzolatto took like three years of writing True Detective season one. They're like, this is a huge hit. We need a new season next year. And yeah. you watch season two and you're like, yeah, this looks like it was written like, in like uh, uh, two months. <laughs> And also, I mean, first albums are usually the best or yeah. most like useful albums about a band. But mm. second albums are kind of always the most interesting. Yes. yes. Like the second season of True Detective is secretly the most interesting, interesting one. Exactly. Despite being objectively the worst. Yeah. Yes. Yep. But then uh, you had a third season. It's like, oh, we, we figured, figured it we out. Figured it out. We, what people like, like, let's turn the guitar distortion up again and give yeah, people yeah. this like 1251 part two. Yeah. No, I mean, yeah, it's like, uh, um, the second management album, I think, is a really good example of this, where it's like, Ooh. you know, when you when you like get a band that hits for a lot of reasons and then, you know, you kind of get if you get to be a big hit band, you basically get a blank check. And that allows you to, like, pursue all your weirdest impulses it's and like that usually psych rock. Yeah. And yeah. That, yeah. And that usually like leads to something that people do not enjoy as much. But or your label like, doesn't enjoy either. Yeah. But yeah. it's like usually closest to the bone of what the band actually Mm-hmm. Yeah. wants to be because it's it's without limitations like you know obviously the strokes are a band that is often exactly what they want to be it's not like too hard to pick up four guitars and like make i mean again those songs are very good but it's not like you know they were like oh if only we could have afforded the arp synth that we needed yeah or they like put a mellotron on <laughs> yeah. record three <laughs> yeah and that's the f- most out there they've ever been i think the fourth record has a harmony Oh, what? <laughs> yeah. It's the first what? time that's happened, and there's maybe Crazy. a conga flying around somewhere, but that's about as far yeah. afield as they've gone. Yeah, but you know, if once you have like, once you're like trying to put a record, to, when you're trying to put a record together, like rehearsing in garages on like nights and weekends when you can get time off or whatever, uh, you know, you you come up with what what it feels most immediate or like what you can get out, and then when you have like a record company handing you a check for like a few million dollars, yeah. you're like, just figure, just whatever you want. You're like, all right, yeah. Mm-hmm. A few million dollars. Oh, Chris. <laughs> I, don't, I'm like, I don't know what the numbers are. Maybe back then. Sure. I don't. What do you think the Strokes got for their second album? A few million know. dollars? Actually, maybe. Yeah. yeah. Wait, like recording budget or? Uh, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. You got to pay the engineer. Yeah. I, I don't know. Oh, yeah. Uh, Gordon Raphael's like basement <laughs> oh, in this building. Did, <laughs> yes, didn't they? They started with Nigel. Uh, Nigel Godric, not yeah. Godric. And then uh, they Scra- like, did not I would have a good... love to hear that. The, they in the book they were like some people had said that they had heard it and they were like oh it's kind of good <laughs> I bet it's good <laughs> different well, who is good. this guy Nigel Godric he's the radio Radiohead oh, okay um, they had a fundamental disagreement about like the way things were supposed to re- record like I think Julian is like every track needs to be individual like mm. and uh, so we can like manipulate things or whatever play around and uh, Nigel is like do it all at once together and sure well that's like, a really no. interesting thing about the Strokes that probably you could extract into some metaphor about their larger process is that like. The way they present is like the live off the floor tape, like old yeah, yeah. Yeah. Julian hates tape apparently. Oh yes. yeah, he's like, oh yeah, why would I spend all this time getting a sound 
and then record it in a way that changes it. Yes. <laughs> like, and they don't do it live off the floor. Like, it's all immaculately created yep. to feel like an old seven inch tape that someone dug out of an attic somewhere <laughs> when in fact it's like a Pro Tools masterpiece yeah. sure. which I think is super cool Yeah, and they, they never lied about it it's not like you know yeah. the video was a tape machine spooling up or <laughs> <laughs> that's I'm how sure all videos should start yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> imagine <laughs> yeah, they're, they're all recording on the four track to tape recorder thing that I have right back here yeah Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> Listeners, it's sort of like a Tascam style. Yeah, tas- <laughs> we've got a Tascam style tape situation here. I don't know if you've ever heard Nebraska. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, we got to talk about Ryan Adams. I saw that down. bolded on your. Uh, I'm like, we, we got to talk about Ryan Adams. We so Ryan Adams, Ryan. the other villain of this book besides uh, Fisher Spooner, and I guess just money in general. And he's the, he was the villain of this book when the book came out, when there was no cultural villainy around Ryan. Adams yes, yet. he he was pre pre canceled. I remember uh, the vibe when the book came out was even like. Boy, they're really being hard on old Ryan Adams. But I, I, I think I, they might have known something we. I'd heard the rap, the bad rap about Ryan Adams for a few years before this. Oh yeah, I think it was a thing, but I think no one had all said it all together and had it all printed in a row in that particular way. Where it's kind of part of the oral history is like how much people didn't like Ryan Adams. Um, but yeah, they they weren't getting specific. Like people were saying, like, oh, he seems kind of creepy. And then you have you know actual you know female musicians musicians being like, yeah, he actually is a creep, and I yeah. have receipts. And it just goes to show, like, you know, he's a fucking asshole. Yeah, he's. An it ass. turns out he was an asshole. Oh, you because know, the thing the thing I always knew about Ryan Adams is he like phoned a pitchfork writer and yelled at them. Sure, <sighs> that was I remember that. Uh, yeah, that yeah. was the only thing. You know, the the Ryan Adams Whisper Network did not make it to my neck of the music yeah. industry and but you were like oh but he did like don't call a reviewer and yell at them that's <laughs> no even Fashy. if you're right you're not gonna win that. no that's a that's an automatic and L. then the book came out it's like oh and also he was like weird with albert or whatever yeah. like, and then oh well so it's not really he turns, turns out he's an asshole yeah and he, yeah. Did, he did asshole things in a bunch of different contexts yeah yeah um Mark Spitz brings up that there was rumors that uh, Ryan Adams had recorded a Casio tone version of This Is It, like note for, or Is This It, like note for note. Which he did for that Taylor Swift album. He did a 1989 redux. Um, He also dedicated- Ryan Adams does seem like a major- like he's crazy person. Yeah, he's a goob. Well, yes. But he does like weird obsessive things like hear an album and be like, I, I, I'm going to recreate a And then have the attention span, or I don't know if attention span is the right word, but does it? Yeah, like yeah. actually have the follow ideas in or like, oh, you know, this record's really fascinating to me as a musician. Yeah. I'd like to like get inside it. Maybe I had I had a big thing for a while. I was going to do like an enema of the state, like Casio thing. <laughs> um, amazing. And then I was like, I don't have time or I do have time, but I'm not going to do it. Yeah. You're not going to prioritize it's really more it. of an idea that's fun to talk about. Yeah. yeah. Like yeah. that your reaction right there. You're like, ooh, your reaction to me doing the entire thing would have also been, ooh, so yeah, exactly. I do it. <laughs> yeah. It's like, it's like funny in its idea. It's funny to be if I had like the MP3s. I was like, oh look, it's a whole album, and then I would listen to like thirty seconds of it and be like, yeah, I get this. Yeah, yeah the the idea is the thing. Yeah, exactly. What, but then to go through to with the idea, you obviously have something. Yeah, something weird, weird going on up there. He also um, he dedicated one of his albums to Meg White for saving rock and roll. Cool. That's Ooh, not weird yeah, at all, yeah. especially now. Yep, yep, yep. Um, uh, it's, he's in the book, right? Yes, he speaks. So what's does he have like? self-awareness vibes or oblivious vibes he's like he's you get a sense he's conscious of trying to put forth a particular kind of mm. loush artistic brand like oh i'm just the you know the the, the pied piper of, of rock and roll the true heart of rock and roll and everyone else is just like full does of he shit. know that everyone else in the book seems to hate him 
maybe kind of he so his thing is like i did not give drugs i did not give heroin to albert Herman jr and albert is like yeah he basically did even if he didn't hand it over to me he created the social situations yeah. in which if you this have to deny giving down. heroin to someone you've probably yeah, given yeah. them heroin in yeah. some sense like it doesn't really come up there's this creepy moment it, at least it came off as super creepy to me and this is ryan saying it which maybe speaks to the fact that he's not quite self-aware of how he comes right. off so he's been hanging out with the stroke he basically he moved to new york he's not a new york guy he's from north carolina yeah. he moved to new york kind of to kind of glom on vampire style to this everybody scene. wants to sit at the strokes table everyone right? wants to yeah. hang out with the fucking which strokes is, but, but he got to do ryan it. adams was more popular than the strokes that's yes. I'm, again he's obviously a weird dude that yeah, like yeah. Why would you go try to hang out with the Strokes? Well, because I guess maybe he had no cred and they had cred. Yeah, I think he just he saw a thing happening and he wanted he wanted in and he got he was in the room. He was at the cool table. But he so he talks about this is one night he's hanging out at Julian. Julian and Albert lived together for seven years, which Aww. is also like the cutest thing ever. And of course, when they moved away, that's the when Joey Albert and like Chandler really. Of rock. Yeah, seriously. Yeah. <laughs> they had like serious girlfriends slash eventually fiancés and they were still living together. Uh, cool. They uh, so they're hanging out their apartment one night, and Ryan is there, and it's late, and they were talking about John Mayer being like, uh, they really enjoyed a recent John Mayer song. I'm not sure what it would have been at the time. John Mayer was cool at this time. Do you remember John Mayer? Uh, I mean, even if he was like lame as a musician, do you remember like John Mayer being on like the Chappelle show? Yeah, around then and being like, uh, do like the white people love electric guitar yeah. sketch? That was great. He, <laughs> he had he, a really good Kid A cover. Yeah, yeah. Uh, not the album, just the song. Just the song. Did, John Mayer the is the move. kind of guy that I think Ryan Adams wants to make himself out to be like a cool, connected, semi, it's like semi aware about mm-hmm. himself. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Um, he had that John Mayer will teach you guitar. Like he spoofed yeah. that dude who has his posters up. Yeah, Dan Smith yeah. will teach you guitar. That's yeah. the one. He seems uh, to have a, yeah, he has a sense of humor about himself. Yeah. And I don't think Ryan Adams has a sense of humor about himself at yeah. all. Most of these people don't a lot. Yes. Paul Banks, maybe. Paul Banks seems to have some weird kind of quirky thing going on that I really enjoy. Yeah. Paul, Paul Banks almost seemed like he was trolling in his interview, but in a funny way. Yeah. Not, not in a like negative or well, nasty way. his whole thing, he's like, everyone took me so seriously. And like these lyrics, I know. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Paul, his intro in the book, he's like, what I mostly listen to in my spare time is like old school hip hop. <laughs> I'm like, yes, you do, Paul Banks. Yes, you do. Um, anyway, so the, they're hanging out with Strokes one night and Ryan Adams is like, they're talking about John Mayer and Ryan Adams is like, I can get John Mayer to come over. And Ryan <laughs> is like, I knew that John lived close, like a few blocks away. And the Strokes were like, Haha, blah, whatever. Uh, he he texts or calls or maybe John Mayer. I don't know what, what the technology was at the time. Uh, he's, out his eraser. he's like, John, come over. <laughs> he gets in a sidekick. Uh, Boost Mobile. Um, John, come over, bring an acoustic guitar. Like, I want to hear this song that you just told me about. And like, you know, probably four in the morning, he opens the door. John Mayer comes in and the Strokes are like, oh my God, you're a wizard. Like, you, <laughs> you brought John Mayer in here. And like, I think Ryan told that story thinking that he was coming off as like cool. cool. Super cool. And, and it kind of comes out as like, manipulative to me like he was trying to be this like magician for these kids yeah yeah, ah. yeah. but also again i feel like i keep coming back to the same thing of like people buying into these narratives that just loop tighter and tighter mm-hmm. but it seems in a sense like that like maybe he bought into that role of like oh i'm the guy in the scene who's yeah. kind of like the connector and i came from this outside world but mm-hmm. i can tell these like these kids don't know how cool they are, how cool they are, and yes. I can bring people to them. And- yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, real like enabler type stuff. Yeah. Yeah, uh, but it also seems like, oh, you want John Mayer? I can get you John Mayer. 
Yeah. Like, I, I, I can get it. I can get it to you. Like, you know, he's like, he's trying to like show off basically. Yes. Um, Nobody want, as much as, as I, I was just saying, John Mayer is cool for doing Chappelle show stuff. I don't want John Mayer coming to my house at 4 a.m. John Mayer. No, in any context, really. <laughs> John Mayer's coming to my house. My house. This <laughs> is <laughs> the, the acoustic version of that song. Yes. Yeah. A nice, Which a nice, Ryan Adams might have yes. on a hard drive somewhere. Oh, God. That wouldn't surprise me one Yes. Bit. Oh my God, his his vault must be really weird. Oh yeah, if, really if embarrassing. That's the stuff that he puts out in public, what does he not release? Yes, that's and maybe true. he does. Maybe he releases everything. Maybe he he's releases pure. most things. Yeah, he's he like three records a year. I yeah, mean, I don't know anymore. Oh God. Anyway, so that, that Ryan Adams is canceled, and um, so Ryan Ryan Gentles, who is the Strokes manager, yes, takes on Ryan Adams at one point and is like, "I will manage both of you." And then the Gently. Strokes basically stage a, an elbowing out of Ryan Adams by right. exercising a clause in their contract with uh, Ryan Gentles that's like, "You are only managing us, my friend. Uh, <laughs> this guy sucks, and he is getting our friend uh, hooked on hair, and we don't like it. Get him out of here." And so that's that's, that's the end of the Ryan, Ryan Adams saga. It is weird how he just dips in and out of the store. Everyone else is so like yes. interwoven. Yeah. You're like, oh right, Paul Banks and the Strokes, and they talk like, about like all going to the stuff. same bars yeah. forever and stuff. So yeah. all, all those paths cross, and yeah, Ryan Adams just drops in in a parachute, being like, who wants some heroin? It's like a weird little hobby for him, and then yeah. he's like, okay, well now I'll go off and be part of a different scene. Yeah, I'll hang with Taylor Swift or whoever. Yeah, or get married to to Mandy Moore. Right, really her career. Yeah. Mm. Um, Kings of Leon show up. I hadn't realized that they were originally marketed as the Southern Strokes, but yeah. they were. Is that how they were? Really? Yeah. That yep. was how they were sold. Wow. And I, it was before that like Almond Brothers long hair vibe became kind of like a corny thing yeah. to throw back to. And it was like they were the only ones that I knew doing about it. doing it. Yeah. I mean, yeah, this is like, like when Bonnaroo was still like mm-hmm, getting really popular exactly. and stuff. <laughs> yes. <laughs> this is peak, peak Bonnaroo time. Yeah. Um, yeah. So they, they basically were like plucked from uh obscurity to uh, the they're connected southern strokes yeah so they're connected to the scene in that way like they can't i think they're from tennessee originally but they go on tour this sounds like an incredible tour and one of those i wish i were there moments where it was the strokes kings of leon and regina specter yes Ooh. that was right before room on fire yeah all my friends like everyone in tokyo and a bunch of other friends we were in high school at this point still and we were going to see Radiohead play in Toronto on the Hail to the Thief uh-huh. tour. And the night before, the Strokes were playing in Hamilton, which is like Toronto's New Jersey. Oh, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And all That's of right my across friends from Detroit, went, right? Exactly. And I didn't go. <laughs> and they that was that tour. They It was the first Strokes encore ever played oh. anywhere oh, at that no. show. And everyone just had all these stories. They snuck, they got, like, you know, they got seats, but then they snuck onto the floor. Oh, and like, all that, like, legendary, we were there, yep. golden age shit. And I was like, cool, I was asleep. Uh, yeah, my my folks or my friends also. Uh, I mean, this is maybe comparable. Is uh, Interpol and opening for the Cure or yeah, at, I remember at, that. that Cure festival yeah, or whatever that came to Toronto. Uh, they all went to that like the week before I became friends with them, and uh, I did not go see that. Curiosa was that? Yeah, called? Curiosa, uh, amazing. Uh, and did not get to see Interpol until uh, the very gentle show at the Forest Hills uh, Stadium Tennis Stadium last year, where yeah. they played all of oh. Turn Off the Bright Lights, but were ushered off stage by the extremely onerous Queens suburban uh, noise regulations before I, seconds before I swear they were going to play evil. And then where they were like, we have one up. Oh, no, we have to leave. Bye. I was I like, mean, damn it. I've never seen t- it. Who's tour managing that shit. Like, you know, know, know your curfew and Come know on. your length. Know your curfew. Play evil. Play. <laughs> you were yelling that the whole time. Right? Yeah, even while they were still do in the middle of doing turn off the bright lights front to back. I was still, evil. No, yeah. we have to finish this one. Do it now. <laughs> 
It wasn't on the record, and we're playing the whole record. I don't care. I know what you're doing. Do it anyway. Play evil. Um, the curfew's coming up. Yeah. <laughs> Chris gets dragged out of Forest Hills. Um, uh, I, if there's one uh, music venue in the city I would like to be ejected from, it is the Forest Hills Amphitheater. Yeah, get ejected straight to that uh, Forest Hills TGI Fridays. Yeah, exactly. Wow. Hell yeah. I've never heard of this place. Ooh, ooh, good stuff. Yeah. Get a get a Jack Daniels chicken sandwich and, and nurse <laughs> I will. <laughs> yeah, that's our spot. <laughs> this is low key. Get, you use a code and a true pod for a free Jack Daniels. Your, your TGI Dude, I would Fridays love to be sponsored by Fridays. That sounds yeah, great. That's on brand. Um, on Fridays. The reason I bring uh, Kings of Leon up mostly besides they, they seem like cool, nice guys. I don't know. Um, sure. They they were on tour with the Strokes and Regina Spector and they were staying at this crazy um, hotel in London called the Columbia, which I guess was kind of like the London version of the, the Hyatt house in LA. Okay. Just like rock stars everywhere. Everyone out of their minds on drugs. Uh, so the, in the story, Nathan Falwell says, uh, I won't name the band because they're friends of ours now. And the guy who that said this is not even in the band anymore. And the next line is Caleb Falwell. And he just says, Interpol. <laughs> <laughs> and oh, Nathan, a classic Carlos story. <laughs> yeah. Click, uh, Nathan says, uh, this one guy from the band was standing there and goes, oh, look, it's Leonard Skinner. And we were like, you vampire-looking motherfucker. We will break this bottle and cut you. You did not have to name Carlos, do you, for that to be the most... You didn't even have to name Interpol to be like vampire-looking motherfucker and know exactly who it is. And then so Caleb, he does his version of the story, and he says, Carlos walked up and said, hey, are you the guys from Almost Famous? And my brother said, are you a fucking mortician? <laughs> we were fucking watching also Interpol on let their premiere on Letterman, which you... Brutal. Yeah, you... Which so you when they play Obstacle on. 1 on Interpol? No, they played PDA, where we were watching. Oh, okay. Ooh, so was the there a different one. shitty late I night? I think so, unless this one was the shitty one. It was not great. We referenced it the first time we did Letterman. We were like, okay, not this. Yeah. Yes, and I can't remember what the good one was, but the Interpol one, we're like, how do we avoid that, yeah. please? Yeah, it looked bad. <laughs> but fucking Carlos D looks like Crispin Glover in uh, Charlie's Angels Full Throttle. Uh, yeah. 100% uh, accurate. Which is, to say, like a huge fucking creep. Looks like he's going to cut a lock of your hair yep. off and sniff it. Which is, which is uh, unfortunate because... By my money, he is one of the absolute top tier best bases of like the. Well, he wanted his baselines to be legendary. Though. They so are that legendary. Is a quote. <laughs> uh, they're fucking legendary. They rule. They're when really you, good. When you go on like late night shows, do you get to have like what is the conversation about like artistic direction? Uh, not much. Yeah. One. Now maybe if you're a big band, but yeah. like it's all union guys. So we took our we. You can take your sound person. And they can be in the room where the person who mixes it is, but they cannot touch the equipment or oh, yeah, yeah. do wow. any actual mixing. I mean, I think ours turned out pretty good, yeah. but like, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, also, you're, it's like five in the morning and it's freezing cold and you're like, just let me eat a bagel. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like watching the Interpol thing, I was like, oh, it seems like they did like this just not fit. You enter a world that all of a sudden makes you realize that like, no one gives a shit about you. <laughs> yeah, because like, it's it's TV because you're doing TV production, not yeah, music. Yeah, and even when you're you know like Tokyo Police Club, of course no one gives a shit. But even Interpol at those days yeah, was yeah. like seemed like I'm sure they felt like the hot shit. They were playing big gigs, yeah, yeah, everyone yeah. wanted a piece. But then you're like, oh, the lead guest tonight is like Charlize Theron. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. Interpol could not be less of a thing. To yeah, like yeah. the teamsters that run this show. The way um, I feel like late night hosts always introduce new bands is always like. And uh, now these crazy <laughs> kids are going to play one of their songs for us. Yeah. These kids are Le so crazy. Yeah. Letterman called us Toyota Police Club. Stop it. 
So. Was he joking? I don't think so. I, uh, that, it sounds like that could be a Letterman bit. But like then Schaefer corrected him for a really long time. Uh, so but, I think uh, we actually got more TV time uh, out Tokyo. of it. That's, uh, that's, uh, that's, Dave, uh, Dave, Dave, Dave. Where, uh, that's, uh, where are Toyotas made, Dave? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, the... <laughs> Caleb Falwell said, um, uh, I'm, I'm actually very friendly uh, with all those Interpol guys, but not Carlos. He's a mortician. Yes. <laughs> Car- Carlos D did not speak in this book. Carlos um, D took a real L when he was like, I'm quitting Interpol to yes. move on to bigger things as a film scorer. And yeah. then nothing ever happened for him. <sighs> Again, maybe he has a nice farm. Who Seems knows? unlikely. There, there's a bit in um, Slash's memoir where he was really struggling at the end of his first tenure with Guns N' Roses and he has a convo with uh, Keith Richards which is kind of about all of his angst and anxiety and Keith is like don't quit the band never quit the band like even when you think you want to quit the band don't quit the band yes. and of course Slash quits the band but like Carlos D it's like don't quit the band that's yes. worst case scenario quitting the band yes yeah. And you think about quitting the band. Yeah. Like, you yeah. go on for long enough. I've thought about quitting the band, but I would have been screwed. Yeah. yeah. What am I going to do? Yeah. Never quit the band. How it, we- it is. We're, we're edging up on two hours. Okay. But um, I mean, it's, I, I'm fine to keep going. And make all right. Great. Like, Intro's like, over. Now we can finally start talking so about angles really, and come down machine. Yeah. Let's, let's yeah. get straight into the, the angle cast. That's our podcast within a podcast. It's only about angles. The Strokes expanded their sound in ways that at the time seemed like a betrayal. But, you know, it, it listened to in the context of a larger career arc plainly are an interesting uh, exploration of the possibilities of the Strokes unique format. And indeed, take in as a comparison with is this it actually would fit perfectly into the return of garage rock uh, uh, genre for which they were initially beloved oh, uh, would you say to get 15% off angles on the <laughs> would you uh, say it's a return to form no our, but the strokes never needed to return to form because yeah. their form continued to evolve our yeah. friend Matthew Perpetual was just saying that he's he, he really wishes that some band would just name their fourth album return, return to form, to form. Yeah. yeah. Or also, second album should be called Sophomore Effort. Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. sophomore, sophomore Effort is a great name for a Someone summer. must have done like Sophomore Slump or something. Yeah. Yeah. Like yeah. Granddaddy had Software Slump. Ooh. Yeah. That's a cute little joke. <laughs> that is, that's good. They, so, I mean, we're basically getting into the segment where like everything kind of. Well, I can uh, feel implodes. it like. Um, Coming in the air tonight. Yeah, yeah. like dissolving. Yeah. In the air tonight. It, right. As like it started, it felt like, oh, we're talking about this, we're talking about this. Now it's like, and then Ryan Adams is and there, then, and here's Kings yeah. of Leon, yeah. and everyone. Now it's a now it's a thing. People want a piece of it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And you get the killer. You get people who are looking at this first generation of folks and doing it kind of better, smarter. Yes. Um, we never talked about Mars Bar. Would you like to talk about Mars Bar? Well, I just want to bring it up. Mars Bar is a legendary shithole East Village, which I had the privilege of uh, frequenting often the two years I lived in the East Village, which was 2010 and 2011. Okay. Uh, Where is it in the East Village or was uh, it? was at like, it was at A in Houston, like right down down at the bottom. It is now a bank. Um, It was a legendary shithole. Is it the cool club a bank? No, it's just, (laughs) it's literally a bank. They've got a crazy Tuesday night dubstep night at the bank. Uh, but I think it closed for good in like 2012 or 2013. Slowly after, I, shortly after I left, it was the only bar I've been to in New York that actually felt dirty and dangerous. So it felt like a weird holdover from uh, from that era. Mm. But I just wanted to bring it up because there's like people say like everybody's at Mars Bar, everybody's at Max Fish's, and I do want to. And we've alluded to this, but there is a sense, at least in the parts of that I read of this book, that 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 you know these people knew each other. And we're friends and there was a it was part of like a larger scene where they like actually hung out and went out with each other yeah. every night yeah. and like 
were a group of some sort, yeah. which is to say that then the, the thing that is the, the ultimate villain of the show, which is when the band becomes a business, band is, a business. is yeah. where we're in and that the whole scene has become a business. Yeah. There's all kinds of, you know, all the label stuff. Yeah. And I mean, also it's your classic, just like people being pushed too hard. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. As an example of like a band who, like I haven't talked about them that much, but their whole thing of being so intense and like Karen O being so physical, you can't, that's not sustainable. Yeah. And so they started basically dialing shit back. Like they could have continued to be huge. And there's a huge betrayal of Karen O moving to LA and starting to date Spike Jones. It's like <laughs> she was the most moved to LA person. I feel like she like epitomized that yeah. everyone from New York moves to LA. Goodbye, yes. goodbye to all that man. Yeah. Uh, the, also I just need to share this is that um, there was an incident of just tour stress where their manager said, uh, Karen had a meltdown. I think it was in Birmingham, England. She threw a massive tantrum and doused me with iced tea. I chased her down the hall and doused her with a gallon of milk. Oh, God. Milk. 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 We have a Jesus. bit on this show where for some reason there is always milk backstage. Have you ever seen milk backstage uh, when you're playing shows? No. No? Like, if you're like, hey, we're going to make coffee. Can we get some milk? And they'll bring you in. Like, like a, a, a tiny a, little. Like, yeah, not enough milk. Certainly not a dousing amount. Uh, milk has come up. And at least a half dozen of the books as like a backstage antic. Yes. I don't. I mean, the mystery of the milk continues. Yeah. I don't I, I don't mean, know. You pay for the rider. So I guess if you're a big band, you can be like, let's get some milk in case it's funny. But <laughs> us working class for musicians. Humor, for humor purposes, we'd like some milk. We could get some we'd real like yucks some, uh, out of it. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. it is. I mean, other than maybe iced tea, there's nothing funnier to douse someone with the milk. It's very visible. It's gross to have yeah. on you. Yeah, like, yeah. Any al alcohol is kind of cool. Yeah. Water is just water. You just want a championship or something. Milk is very comedic. There, It could have been a time when maybe Karen O would have doused herself with milk on stage, but sure. then it seems like less of a, a transgression to douse her with milk backstage. It was actually, this is I, my thesis I wrote on the unlikely correlation between the Yeah, Yeah, Yeah's milk-related antics and the Limp Bizkit rearranged video where they are drowned in milk as punishment for destroying Woodstock 99. <laughs> so, you know, you don't think that they're making a reference, but secretly. Give them the milk. Give them the milk. God. So, like, yeah, he has an example of people who they actively were not trying to be the biggest band in the world because it would have destroyed them. Yeah. Um, and uh, Jaleel from, uh, Jaleel Bunton from TV on the radio says, uh, Karen O, she's iconic, which is weird to say, but she is. I saw how difficult it is to maintain your humanity in that and watching her do it, I'm really grateful. So like, I don't know, there's a different universe in which she could have completely flamed out. Yeah. yeah. And, and she held on to her sense of sanity. Those later AAS records are really good. It's just that yeah. Fever to Tell is such a vital, incredible, special record right. that anything after it is going to sound limp. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, my favorite uh, Yeah Yeah song is from 2009, Heads Will Roll. You like the EDM Yeah Yeah Great Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Although I will say that that's the kind of thing where like that's what happens to bands and happened to these bands and happens to every band mm -hmm. where you like, you get, it seems to us they loom so large. Oh yeah, 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 as maps, so culturally important. But like, like the Strokes watching the Killers, it wasn't top like yeah and when you're at when you do maps there is the possibility that like oh if we do the right move with the next song mm -hmm. we could be that band you right know? and you know and again getting back to like talking about radiohead is sort of like the, yeah the setting the bar for people you feel like oh shit they made kid a and became an arena band yeah yeah and so and you know you get and there's all you label people and managers and well-meaning people who mm -hmm. are like oh you know maybe this producer <laughs> could help you like get your sound yeah to a new crowd and then you make it's Blitz, which is a really good record, yeah. but also is like, hey, what if 
instead of yelping and sort of like Nick Zinner playing a high tremolo guitar while a jazz drummer plays jazz drums, yeah. uh, we had like a synth and a chorus. Yeah. yeah. And that's that's what you get. That's and it's it a really good rap. Luckily, that's how good Yaya Yaz are is they yeah, took yeah. that career move that was definitely at least a little bit angling for more success and yeah. also made something really good out of yeah. it. Yeah. Um, that's them. Like Interpol's sort of uh, oh, Interpol uh, is the, over the worst. Oh, should I yeah. tell my Interpol story? Yeah. Is yeah. Oh, yes. Now is the time, please. Because two hours and 20 minutes into the podcast, it's everyone's time. definitely still listening. Yeah, yeah. Oh, perfect. <laughs> uh, it will be 20 minutes after I finish this story. Uh, no, we were doing our first full-length record. We tried to record with Peter Cadis, who did the first two Interpol records okay. and did Boxer, the national record. Mm. Sure. It was sort of a big deal at the time in Bridgeport, Connecticut. And in the same house that they recorded. The very same uh, house. Yep. Uh, Turn on the bright lights. That's the one. Yeah, and yep. at the same piano I that's read on that the strangers yep. and stuff. Yeah. And um and we ended up scrapping all of it because we weren't ready and he was the wrong producer for it and it was fucking terrible. Oh, but man. we spent a month in that house and we went into Manhattan on a weekend because Interpol, who had just signed a Capitol Records sure. yeah. done the yep. major label thing, uh we're doing a Madison Square Garden headline show. Right. And as we, opposed to the Madison Square headlining show they did last weekend. Right, with Carsey Harris and Snail Mail. Right. Uh, Everyone's coming back in. Yeah, yeah. Oh, there <laughs> we go. Stars yeah, are here. Uh, and I don't remember who opened this one, but so we went in and we we took the train and went to Madison Square Garden and we're like, oh fuck, man, we'd been playing with Interpol at festivals all summer. Sure, so we, yeah. knew, we knew their set like inside and out. Yeah, and all the cool moments. And they would start with Pioneer to the Falls, like the epic mm-hmm. opening track off their major label debut. Mm-hmm. But then afterwards, they go into Obstacle One, and mm. people would go crazy. Yes, and so it. We're sitting like uh, at Madison when you get on guest list, you're often like side stage, like mm-hmm. looking right onto the stage, like yeah. at a, a perfect perpendicular. Yeah. 90 degree section. Thank yeah. You. yeah. And we could tell they had a scrim up. Uh-huh. We're like, oh shit, they've never had a scrim at any of the shows we've seen. They really pulled at all the stops for this Madison Square Garden show. I bet they're going to start with like their sh- huge shadows in the scrim. And when Pioneers to the Falls finally kicks in, they're going to drop it. And it's going to be the coolest thing ever. I saw Sigurus do just that. Yeah. So they start the song <laughs> and they hit that moment and the script stays up. And we're like, oh, they're holding it for when they start Obstacle 1, the most recognizable song. People are going to go bonkers. Yeah. They start Obstacle 1, Scrim stays up. They finish <laughs> Obstacle 1, Scrim's still up. And Paul's like, all right, well, we're going to take a short break while we get this fucking thing down. No! And all these surly Madison Square Garden, like Teamster crew guys come out with just very long sticks Bowls and stuff. No! Like, poke the scrim until it finally falls down. Oh. And it just like, killed the momentum of the show. Oh. And in my mind, killed the momentum of Interpol's career. And that's why their major label debut wasn't a success. And now they're back on Matador. Oh, my God. And so wow. every time we talk about doing like, oh, we should do like some cool production for a hometown show. We're like, whoa, 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 whoa. whoa Remember whoa. the scrim. Let's just keep things easy. Remember the scrim. Remember the scrim. Oh, my gosh. That but is they had such a tragic transition from Matador to Capital. Yeah. yeah. I don't love... Our Love to Admire. It's not a good record at all. But there are a few songs I love off of it, such as... Massive is good. Uh, yeah. Heinrich Maneuver, this song. And also, song in retrospect, at the time, this felt like, ooh, Interpol's really changed it up. It's not, Sounds just like something yeah, off no. Room of Fire. Not Room of Fire. Uh, Antics, Inter- the second yeah. Interpol record. Like, it's just an Interpol song. Yeah. yeah. It's an Interpol song. I mean, I think that that was one of the things about these these bands this age. And I know this is a little sidestep, but again, I, I'm going to mention Franz Ferdinand again. Where it's like they briefly mentioned Franz Ferdinand in the book. Where it's like there's these debut records were so seismic 
yeah. that even a second record that was basically like here's something equally as good like exactly yeah. the same as the debut well that's like Room on Fire is that yeah yeah and mm-hmm. then what's the the second Yeah Yeah's record um, with Gold Line on it Show, yeah. your, bones. Show your Bones yeah. yeah it's kind of the opposite where it's like this is a really like, it starts with acoustic guitar the yeah, one yeah. thing that's never on Fever to Tell yeah and both those records they tried totally different tacks and they both fell flat in a similar way yeah yeah um, yeah, I mean that's the, the the difficulty of expectation. Where it's much easier to be a band that like slowly builds over time than to that rockets to the top at, at once, and then you have to be like sophomore effort. Yeah, unless you're Vampire Weekend. Yeah, unless you're Vampire Weekend. Well, we'll talk we'll talk about Vampy Weekend. They make it into the book. They do. Yeah. What? They're the other thing that they're symbolizes the, they're the, the, avoid the, the, the bracket of of this era. But I mean, I I had said this before before we started recording of like. Obviously, this book is about, you know, it's about what happens when hipster culture becomes culture, just the, the dominant force in culture. It's about gentrification. It's about, you know, 9-11. It's about all this shit. But it's also mostly about bands who had really, really good first albums. albums. Yeah. yeah. And then couldn't, couldn't really. really like live. But not it's not necessarily even their fault. It's just like the momentum that is created by a truly banging first album is so hard for almost anybody yeah. to deal with. And yeah. it's just the truth of like how subjective it is, where it's like there's a lot of these bands where you could probably boggle up their discography mm-hmm. and go back in time and release Room on Fire before Is This It? Yeah, yeah. Or release It's Blitz before Fever to Tell. And people would now be complaining about how Is This It was an underwhelming follow. Yeah, yeah, yes. yeah. You know, the context is so important. Yeah, right. the narrative. Yeah. The goddamn the nar- yeah. narrative. And when, especially when you're doing a whole scene that is built on a narrative to begin with. They're not, like the Beatles were inventing a certain archetype. I mean, like, you, you know, know the one band up from the scene that bucks this, LCD, that every album is markedly better than the previous album. Are you including American Dream in this? I'm not because I actually no, I, that's not part of this book. It's not part of this book, and also I, I'm okay. not a huge American Dream fan. I think it's I think it's so good, but you know, in their initial run, they just get better and better and more epic that's true. and more about what their whole thing is, and then end and then cut it off and and like and there's enough time between each album mm-hmm. to be like we have transformed this thing into a whole other thing. It's because they own the means of production, man. It's true. Yeah. Yep. They don't. They didn't have you know a major breathing down their necks, being like it's got to be as good as is yeah, this yeah. it or an indie breathing down their necks who are like, hey, we don't have any money. We rely on you to yeah. pay for this label to exist, you know. Yeah. And that's, I mean, we work with indies and they're all wonderful, but yeah. when the margins are smaller, sometimes it's actually even more yeah. desperate that they're like, you have to not fuck this up. Well, I imagine like dealing with the execs from uh, indies is like dealing with a. Uh, that Gill from The Simpsons, where they're calling you up every time, being like, "Hey, uh, just uh, I hope you guys are doing great. Uh, we love hear, hearing from you, but uh, just wondering when that album's coming in because uh, you know we, uh, you know, we have uh, bill times coming up this. Uh, the bands are like that too, though. Like that's it's just an industry of gills being yeah, like, yeah. oh, I'm just what I need another piranha in the tank. <laughs> yeah, the Vampire Weekend, another record. We're <laughs> getting overshadowed on Pitchfork again. Yeah. Um, that yeah. So just other kind of um you know, canaries in the coal mine of this scene ending is like, obviously the, the Disneyfication of the, the lower East side, East village. Mm-hmm. And then yeah. Williamsburg shortly after everything, just once Brooklyn becomes an idea that can be marketed, marketed and yeah. sold, um, that ship sails. Cause at the end of the day, all these bands were able to do what they did because, uh, living was cheap. cheap yes. And if living yeah. is not cheap, then where are you, are you going to make your record? You shall make it in Philadelphia. <laughs> yeah. That is what's happening right now. Um, to a large extent, I think. Um, uh, or I don't know. DC my or handshake moment with the end of this book is that the first year that I lived in these village, 2010, 
I got invited to a bar party from somebody I knew who went to Columbia mm-hmm. a block away from my house in the East Village and into this like reclaiming some drink tickets or something. They were like, oh, yeah, all the Vampire Weekend guys are here. And I like looked around at this party and was like, and just decided in my head, uh, these Vampire Weekend guys are probably assholes. And then wrote off, wrote off that band for several years. I thought you were going to say you looked around the room and you tried to pick out who was in Vampire Weekend and couldn't do it. Yeah. No, I couldn't. Because <laughs> everybody looked like Columbia grads and nobody looked like a rock star. Yeah. Well, I had, like, like, at that point, I had like heard of Vampire Weekend, but I didn't really listen to them. And then I continued to not listen to them for six years afterwards I mean, based solely on the vibe of that bar party. Yeah. Who was it that said, uh, you know, uh, movie critics like Woody Allen? Or no, it was rock critics like Elvis Costello because rock critics like look like Elvis Costello. Yeah. I think that Vampire Weekend is maybe like they look like bloggers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Not anymore. Yeah, you know now now they look like cool hype beasts in a really <laughs> weird way that somehow yeah. becomes intelligent and smart and makes and, the songs better. Yeah. I love Vampire Weekend, but I cannot figure out how they did it. And Ezra yes. Koenig's like making weird animes, sorry, yeah. Jaden Smith, and like dunking on Megan McCain online. He's a lot cooler now than I thought he was in 2010. Mm. Yep. He, I mean, but he's 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 blogger first. They, he's who all the bloggers want to be. He's all, all the, the bloggers, bloggers wish they could make bloggers a weird anime and dunk him. on Megan McCain. Yeah, because <laughs> somewhere along this decade, everyone used to want to be Julian Casablancas, and now they want to be Ezra Koenig. Yeah, yeah. Like it became cooler to like kind of have your shit together. Yeah. You know, I assume Ezra like jogs, <laughs> like he like goes for or, like does yoga or something. Yeah, he probably like, has a really good diet. Yeah. Oh, God, I bet. Yeah. It's depressing. <laughs> so yeah let's let's talk let's let's bring them in um because that's really because that means that now we're in on this story not in the we're not obviously we didn't make the book but, but you're, we, you're, we're like we're, contemporaries yeah like a tokyo slip records now exist in this world yes yeah oh the the other thing to briefly bring up is that you know all of these just incredible parties of the early 2000s like uh motherfucker and uh tis was and like <laughs> everything that um uh that guy whose name i'm talking on all the todd p parties has been subsumed by misshapes who everyone right. in this book is like misshapes was a party that kind of predated but inspired photo first partying like the idea of like uh, you are there to get your picture taken and it becomes more about the fashion and the celebrities Social media is my starting space is starting yeah. and this is this is my experience with this world which yeah. is always like that to me um yeah i'll take a brief diversion to this a friend a very good friend of me and molly's uh lived in new york at at in the early aughts uh was i would say adjacent to this scene and has a lot of memories of this time he sent he just sent me 30 minutes of recorded <laughs> recollections of this that I might just re- which we will now play now. This no. is going to be this is like the fucking Lord of the Rings extended yeah. edition. Episode. I might release, I'm sorry, guys. I might release that as just a, a uh, bonus if anybody's actually careful, but uh, cares about it. But I, I care. He also forwarded me like an old old email show fi- flyer for a Todd P party around this Ooh. time. So I just wanted to read what this is. Yes, Uncle Polly's two dollar beer. Uncle Polly's is totally a temporary structure built out of blue canvas and two by fours and plywood on a slab of concrete next to the huge under construction Death Star Minaret upside down hot air balloon looking sewage treatment plant in Greenpoint. During the daylight, men in hard hats eat fried food here. Totally (laughs) patio, totally inside. Easy to get to, but so far out, nobody cares. Noise and DJs till the wee hours. $2 beer. Bring your ID for the beverages. MySpace link. And how much is this beer? $2. $2. Uh wow! You could do we did two hours on that flyer. Yeah, yeah exactly. That's the, a, the derision for the fried food, food eating, eating uh, construction workers. Class. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 
hard hard to get to. There's but so there's yeah, so much ink in this. Sounds not uh, fun at all. Spilled on just like these really inconvenient locations for things yeah. of like, well, I mean, ah, cabs play, play, don't drive here. Playing that show was Chinese stars and monotonics. If you oh, remember. monotonics is a good band. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, as we <laughs> record I had, like, this, like a Chinese stars album that I downloaded okay. off of like fucking. LimeWire or something because I was like I don't know people I've read about this in some place I'll listen to these well that's an interesting other angle to all this music is all of a sudden everyone could hear all these records yeah you know you didn't have to rely on HMV to have it yeah yeah you yes, you had that. You had um, women blog a lot. It was mostly women just blogging the shit out of the scene. Ultra girl. Uh, we we hung with Ultra girl. Really? Yeah, she was a big Tokyo Pixel fan. Oh Aww. man, she seems. I feel like she gets a lot of hate, but I I see a lot of purity in this woman. She, uh, just pure fandom. She was just a nice person, and we would like go to scene apartments queen. and drink beer with the third Madden brother. The one that wasn't in Good Charlotte. <laughs> Wait, he, was, I, he was in this scene and he would always be around. And I'm like, hey, that's that guy that looks like the Good Charlotte guys. <laughs> there was a third man. Yeah, neither did I until I met him. It's like being a third Hems or fourth Hemsworth. I third believe Hemsworth. there are four. Hemsworth. There are. Yeah, there's more Hemsworth. There's yeah. also that's like the bonus Jonas, too. Yeah. Bonus Jonas. Oh, yes. The bonus Jonas is probably old enough now to be in the new Jonas. But there's brothers. there's Jonas. Bonus Jonas erasure is happening anew with this new Jonas Brothers <laughs> record. Like I feel he's too so young bad. to fuck. <laughs> How old is he? He's eight, but he's hot. <laughs> That's a line from Pen Fifteen. I get canceled. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that like all that shit's happening. Um, the Vampire Weekend is the other uh, kind of closure of the scene because they commit. They come on. They sound totally different. They don't sound dirty and like grungy and sexy. They sound like kind of a light and poppy and eclectic was always the yep. the uh, adjective described d- used to describe them um Ezra Koenig doesn't party that hard he's like partying is not really my vibe uh they have songs about grammar principles they were described Primarily. as canny canny is the word that yeah. was used because they they'd seen this whole scene kind of be created and destroyed and they they're super referential. They they're children of the internet. Yeah. They mm-hmm. they grew up being able to pull all of these sources from everywhere, and so they create the sound that everyone starts talking about. And it's just like you said, how do I don't know how they do it. I don't really know how they did it either. They, no yeah. one in this book well, knows how the they did. The fact, it. I mean, they were in the right place at the right time, of course. And the fact that this scene had by the time, I mean, it's amazing to actually connect the early aughts to, directly to Vampire Weekend. Yeah. In my yeah. mind, they're so far yes, apart. absolutely. But the fact that the scene was still there and at this point would have been running on the vapors of entirely commercialism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyone that was left at these parties, anyone that was left in the scene was either just trying to desperately cling on to it or more likely was trying to monetize it. Yeah. So for a band to come on that clearly, like, if you come into this scene with this song, you don't give a shit about the scene. Yeah, yeah. You don't care. And that is what the, it felt like to listen to The Strokes yeah. at the beginning of all of this. And so, you know, it all begins anew. And it's crazy that, you know, uh, Interpol's suits and the Strokes leather jackets were the cultural change in fashion, and then you've got uh, Lacoste. Yeah, and it, and it ushers again. in this era of you mentioned. I always thought they were called MGMT. You said management. I, I, maybe I, I'm well, I call the, them either way. In yeah. their early days, they were technically supposed to be called management, okay. and then I actually went to an MGMT show in 20, 2008 when like they had blown up. And everyone in the audience was saying, MGMT, MGMT. And I was like, that's not what they're called. They're called management. But I think it's what the people they want. They started out as the management when they were still playing at Amherst. And I will call them by their first name. I consider it only a uh, contraction. <laughs> Whatever they're called, all of those bands and Yaysayer mm. and all those bands, all were Ivy League bands all mm-hmm. of a sudden. Yes. Which I don't know what 
that says definitely something. And I feel like Vampire Weekend kind of was the first of those. There was a minute when all of our peer bands, yeah. except us, yeah. came, were, from came from Ivy's. Or Wesleyan. Yeah, exactly. And we were like, oh, we didn't go. We didn't go to university and we're Canadian. Yeah. <laughs> May we come to the show? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So yeah, that's I kind mean, of. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I, I don't know. I just like thinking about that Vampire Weekend party and then like, you know, it's just like also thinking about how. The, the brutal commercialization of the of New York over the last 20 years and mm-hmm. how like even when I moved here my apartment in Harlem was in I'll, I'll say Harlem but also like literally on Manhattan on the island of Manhattan was cheaper rent than I was paying to live in suburban Chicago when I was going to school there yeah and that is amazing to think about in 2009 and now like for this place that we live in here that is maybe the size of a, a, a standard like our like mobile home, uh, you know, we're paying thousands of dollars a month for. Yeah. It's impossible to do anything in this city. Yeah. When I was trying to be in a band here, like, like, as I was saying, the logistics of like being in a band are impossible to Having deal with. Jam here. space. Like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's space. extremely hard. We had to share our, our, we just pay hundreds of dollars to share our space with six other bands. Yeah. You get like a Wednesday night from seven till nine and someone fucked with all your shit. Yeah, Wednesday. exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it's just like extremely difficult. It, it, it's it it feels sad to be like the same thing that uh, I made a web series about this. Uh, <laughs> the, the same thing that that makes this city so magical and enchanting is the same thing that is squeezing the life blood out of the ability to do the things that you want to do here. It's an Ouroboros of suck. Yeah, mm-hmm. but at the same time, I think that you know it is awfully coincidental that if you I bet if you asked anyone from this book, not this remove, but at the time. They might have felt like they got to New York just too late, just too late, just, just slightly too late. Too late. Yes. And so then, you know, they did they did their best to try and recapture the sort of artificial nostalgia that they just conjured up for themselves about what the city was just before they got there. Yeah. And that created the scene. You know, you're going to get interviewed in 10 or 20 years for about an oral history book about the, 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 the like the New leftist York podcast scene. boom yeah. in New York. <laughs> And I'm going to make up so much you know, shit. It's going to be, be such an asshole. That, that is the only correct way to do it. Yeah. But it is, you know, it's easy to laugh at it now, but that's going to become someone's nostalgia because yeah, yeah. that too will move on and become I wish more I was making a leftist po- podcast in Brooklyn yeah. in 2016. And no, then no those one knows people the will be doing something happening. else. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it, maybe it won't be in New York, you know, maybe it'll be in, in Philadelphia yeah. or in Albany or in, you know, I don't know, where New Market, Ontario, yeah. where I'm from. <laughs> it seems very unlikely. <laughs> but I think it is. And I think what's hope, I mean, hopefully we break out of that constant recursion it yes. doesn't, doesn't seem terribly optimistic frankly but uh this book is certainly an interesting look at how you can through sheer force of will you can build something that's kind of good and cool and contains really good art yeah. out of just like the sheer desire to be back somewhere yeah and i don't yeah. know if that's healthy or unhealthy but the records are good um yeah and i think as i mentioned earlier when i was talking about mars bar there's value to like wanting to hang out with your friends and like being in a place where a lot of people are friends with a lot of other good creative people and like everybody's kind of egging each other on. And even if it, a lot of it is just like looking at the most popular kids and being like, hey, I want to be like that. Yeah. Like if yeah, 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 existed because Karen O was like, oh, those uh, uh, strokes guys seem really cool. I should do that. And we got all of yeah, yeah, yeah's out of that. I'm like, well, fuck the yeah, yeah's rule. We should. That's amazing. You yeah. know. So what? What? Uh, what is my theory there? Have friends. Go Have out. friends. Go out drinking and doing drugs with people that you think are cool, and if they do something cool that you like, try to do something similar to it. 
I think, yeah, don't, well, I guess, hmm, I was going to say don't be so meta aware of everything you do, but mm. the winners of this book, yeah, as we discussed, kind are, of were all the people, yeah. although they were all talking about this how many years later. Like, if you're a halfway smart person, it's not that hard to recast all of the decisions you made and all the experiences you had back in the day yes. as, oh, you know, I did it all very knowingly, and I was actually, I had the benefit of hindsight the whole time, yeah. even contemporaneously. Yeah. I, I somehow think that maybe Julian Casablancas's path through it was a little less like cool and detached than he would have you believe now. Sure. Yeah. Although maybe he was the most cool and detached one. He no, that would be James it. Murphy, who knew right. exactly what he was doing yeah. before he did it for the entire time. Control and after free. he got through his breakthrough with his three day a week therapist. Yes. That, right. That when once the therapist was like, James, I'm giving you permission to do ecstasy. I was gonna say he had three three day a week therapy for his entire life, and it wasn't until he did ecstasy that he was like Dancing should, is fun. I should be a rock star. Um, music is good. Mixing things, mixing different kinds of music is good. And I can do that. Yes. And maybe he should have changed therapists. Yeah. <laughs> maybe. If you're getting the same thing three days a week and it's not until you do ecstasy yeah. once, I feel like maybe the therapist wasn't doing great work. Yeah. Agreed. Who's holding you like back, a, James. The most inscrutable meme ever that's like does ecstasy once forms LCD senses. <laughs> that, yeah. That, so is that pro? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, these are uh, people who just like, they either were from New York or they moved to New York because they wanted to have fun and make stuff. And New York is not a very hospitable place for that anymore. But there are weirdos still here. That's the other thing is like, at the beginning of the book, they were just talking about how weird New York is and how full of randos it is. So random. Uh those Only people are still in New here. York. Yeah, yeah. People still move to New York because it's full of freaks. Yeah, the freaks yeah. are the freaks are around. Yeah, you still meet quite strange people. Yes, mm -hmm. all the time here. It's just well, life yeah. finds a way. We need more affordable housing for for freaks. New York. Yes. That's my mayoral campaign. New York, I love you, but you're bringing me down. Oof, it's true. Ooh, it really baby. is. James Murphy, a man who managed to acquire gout. Yes, in the 21st century. <laughs> He's got the and gout. We, we must respect him for that. <laughs> yeah, shout out to gout. Uh, shout out to all the gouts out there. Um, I'll close with a, or close the at least the book uh, portion with by saying there's a great Karen O end of book quote where she says, "Every now and then I'll hear, oh, thank you so much, you really got me through high school, or you really got me through a hard time. Uh, I've heard that from fans, and I don't really know what to say back except for, oh, really, thank you. But really in my head I'm like, I manifested that shit for you. I wanted to get in there like a motherfucker, and that's what I did. Ah, uh, yes, I believe that. Yeah, yeah, that's amazing." I want to get inside people's heads and help, and help them through um, yeah. tough times. She manifested that shit. Uh, we recently got, to, to kind of segue this into our end of show patter, we recently got a message in which somebody said that they were coming down off mushrooms and listened to I our- I saw that, that you tweeted about the that. most yeah. recent episode and that it was a really good experience. And honestly, uh, mushroom dude, thank you. I could not uh, imagine better praise than saying that yeah. our show is good to listen to when you're coming down off shrooms. We manifested that shit for you. That's we right. <laughs> <laughs> that is the exact kind of vibe. Podcasts are the new rock and roll. Yeah. Podcasts are the new rock and roll. It's the saddest sentence I've ever seen. That is, uh, <laughs> yes. I just say that in the Kanye voice. <laughs> Rap the new rock and roll. Yeah. Be the new rock stars. Uh, no, I mean, that is a, that is a good vibe to, to ascribe to is, is a good come down, come down, listen. Um, but with that said, and pouring over this thing, that scene that is very deep in, in my heart and so dense, deep and dense. Jesus. Wow. Uh, Molly, you've already mentioned that this book as a book is, is a do read. Oh, it's a must read. This, okay. is, a, this is a Molly do. Now I want to read it. I was really out on reading the book and now I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm an in. I feel I, like we, we warmed you up. You can sort of like, I also feel like I owe it to you. <laughs> 
<laughs> so you read that book so fast. I love. I love. I that I is the engine that makes the show go. Really, uh, it was so good. I was like, yeah, it was. Re- it's real juicy. It's like just full of one-liners. I feel like I didn't even get to one percent of them. Is there any like what real funny joke to sign uh, that you didn't get to say yet? Um. I, I downloaded this book. Yes, okay. I've got one to close. Uh, yeah, or to, yes. I've got a good individual joke. The National is a little bit in this book. Great. Thank you for bringing them up because I did want to mention that uh, uh, that the two brothers from The National. Uh, Which two brothers? Um, the Burning Desners. Curse? Oh, the Desners. Bryce and Aaron Desner yeah. uh, used to babysit me. And I'm no distantly, shit. I'm distantly related to them. Not distantly. My stepfather, who passed away 20 years ago, is their like uncle. Oh, wow. Uh, so, uh, Bryson Aaron De- Desner. Raised by the National. Uh, uh, I hope you listen to this and get in touch with me. Uh, we'd love to have you on. <laughs> uh, you guys rule. I remember also, can you guys- I have some studio time? In your yeah. Yes. It's really, <laughs> it's really cool. live around here. Uh, I remember you guys like as like teenagers like playing little piano ditties to me as a kid. Aww. Yeah. And someday they turned into a, you know. Whatever that little ditty song. was and called that Mr. Mr. November. <laughs> That's how every, by the way, speaking of uh, as we were very long ago, of like major labels taking you out for dinner, every major label A&R guy only tells stories that end that <laughs> They're all constructed in the exact same way. They're like, and I saw this band that just was playing this metal show and everyone said, you can't oh. play guitars like that. And I was like, I think they're pretty cool. And that band was called Metallica. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> Just imagine somebody listening to any Metallica at any time during their career being like, you can't play guitars that way. Don't Fast and stop, hard? Stop no, playing never, guitars that never way. Work. You're going to get in trouble. Stop playing <laughs> guitars that way. Um, the So this is Matt Berninger from The National uh, talking about coming up around the same time as The Strokes. But he says, uh, we would have liked to be The Strokes. But we were already older and from Cincinnati. We didn't own anything made of leather, and Converse hurt my back. I was a New Balance guy already, so we couldn't be the Strokes. <laughs> Amen. And Listen, they weren't. They became the Strokes for dads. They came, yeah. Well, yeah. they became the National. Yeah. There's a longer career in being the Strokes for dads. You gotta yes. New Balance. You gotta. You gotta be sustainable. You gotta be sustainable. You don't want to. You don't. Fu- People back back surgery and back uh, treatment is not an exact science. There's still a lot they still need to figure out. That's so true. the more we can do to preserve our backs, the better. Well, now rounding out a uh, rounding into two hours and thirty minutes into this, this might be one of the longest ones we've done. But this is. Uh, we, we I'm, went sorry, long- I'm sorry if you have to edit this. We went longer on uh, Travis Barker. It's true. Yeah. Well, uh, who wouldn't? Who wouldn't? Who wouldn't? Uh, <laughs> but now let's move confidently into the end of this episode. Uh, God, I love uh, New York in the in the early aughts. Let's bring it back. Thank you so much uh, yes. for coming on the show. Is, it, is there anything that you would like to plug or any final thoughts or any anything like that? Oh, man. Uh, well, thank you for having me, mostly. Thanks for reading the book and of letting me talk about my my new theories about how <laughs> music scenes are actually secretly recursive traps. Yes. Uh, it's going to change how I maybe experience the rest of my career. But yeah, man. We were never really in a scene, so... I think maybe we we escape from that a bit, mm. or someday they'll do an oral history of like the the mid aughts, late aughts rock. Yeah, like well, I'll, we'll talk to you more about this off the air because you know that's the time that both of us were in college. So I mean, I have like very specific memories of Tokyo Police Club coming out and like finding it. Yeah, on we caught the, blogs like, and stuff like that. Everyone has very specific memories, or not everyone, but a lot of people have very specific memories of our first couple of years. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. and then we kept going. <laughs> so and it's a it's a weird. It's interesting to look at bands that manage to you know make that into more of a, yeah. a story or more of a not more of a career but yeah more of a high profile career certainly mm-hmm. 
Uh, but anyway, in terms of plugging, Tokyo Police Club still exists. <laughs> I think everyone might have gathered that. And in fact, we never stopped. We were making <laughs> records the entire time. Never stop, never stopping. Here. Uh, and then I have another band called Girlfriend Material. Uh, that Good name. Great band. There's an EP on your, your local streaming service. Wonderful. And we're going to put a record out in the summer. But yeah, cool. no date and yet. You can, so. can we find you on like Bandcamp too if we want to buy shit directly from you? Yeah, it's it's on Bandcamp. I think it's just girlfriend material, but it might be like girlfriend material rocks if someone took we it. We can, we'll, we'll link it. We'll throw some links in there. I'm on Twitter yeah. and they have my name description. and yeah. Which, wait, what's Graham Wright and Tokyo Police Club. I run both. Oh, really? you, are you the, the you're, social media you're the webmaster? Will, yeah. you, will you give this a retweet from the official account? I saw you have 50,000 followers. <laughs> oh, I'll give it a bunch of retweets. Oh, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. However many times you I know how I got it. on the show. <laughs> not flattering myself. <laughs> I do not have anything particular to plug right now. Uh, Chapo is almost certainly coming to England in June. But we yeah, it's actually now the Chapo thing in England is in. It's like a blue tarp and wood yes. next yes. to where some scum construction. Yeah, we're, we're gonna, shitty food and the beers are two dollars. Yeah, we're gonna play. Uh, we're near near where some limey uh, uh, longshoremen uh, toss fish onto a galleon in the in the middle of the Thames. Uh, <laughs> You're playing it. on a barge in the middle of the <laughs> Yes, exactly. We're doing the Sex Pistols tour of London. Yeah. Uh, we're playing. Uh, it's you and a statue of Michael Jackson yeah, on yeah. a barge exactly. going down the Thames. <laughs> um, you cancel it. You topple it off the barge. Yeah, yeah. Yes, and yeah. Then the, uh, Don't worry. And then the anti Corbinistas uh, will uh, set up a depth charge depth charge in the uh, in the Thames to cancel us. This is going to be the best fucking show ever. <laughs> and honestly, it's ha- yeah, this is going to end the oral history of New York podcast. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But that's all I have for right now. I keep on threatening to read show emails on it. But honestly, at this point, Molly, I, th- I feel like we should just do a bonus episode where we respond to listener mail. Cool. How do you feel about that? <laughs> I feel great depending on what the mail is. <laughs> it's mostly book suggestions and somebody with their theory about milk, which I believe. <gasps> okay. Yeah. I we can do read. a separate milk episode. Okay, yeah. Great. Yeah. So stay tuned. <laughs> stay tuned for milk. <laughs> yeah. 15% off your next quart. Yeah. Quart. Molly, do you have any plugs? I got I got no plugs. All right. Well then let's let's put a bow on this. Uh, thanks for listening. We'll be back in another two weeks with more episodes. You can follow us on Twitter at and intro pod or send us an email at andintroducingpod at gmail.com. Our SoundCloud is as always at soundcloud.com slash and dash intro dash pod. And remember to subscribe to us on iTunes. And you know, like maybe uh, you were there at the very beginning when we first released our episode on Duff McKagan. You, you heard the echo. You knew I couldn't quite figure out how to engineer sound in here right now, but you stayed with it. Uh, you were I, there. I was going to say, I heard all of you were uh, selling your guitars and buying microphones for podcasts. Yes, for podcasts. Uh, but I, I heard all you, you're selling your microphones for podcasting. As and pivoting buying, to video. Pivoting to video. Yes, exactly. That's how this works. Um, so only leave good reviews, positive vibes only. Please. Uh, and until then, we'll see you in another two weeks with the story of music, musician, history. I don't usually do this part of this. Anyway, another, another two weeks. Uh, this has been Anne introducing. Thank you.